Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Friday morning, March 24th, 843-661-0937 is our number. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. So um, you want to go philosophical first? You want to go hit mid? I mean, you want to do these um the, the the lighter issues in American? We can talk March Madness, but I went to bed early last night. I Me don't too. Really, I mean, I didn't see much of anything. I did see um, Kansas State beat Michigan State, and Michigan State under Tom Izzo or one of these teams that always perform, uh, they over-excel. Uh, is, that, is that a word, not over-excel? O- over-perform. Yeah, over-perform. Out-perform. They excel. They excel, excel in, in the tournaments. Uh, over-excel. Well, there you M- go. Michigan State could have a fairly pedestrian season and come playoff time, March Madness time, they seem to always, here we go, ready? Rise to the occasion. That isn't cliche is it? Wow, that sounds of like a good March not. Madness word. Of course not. Hey, I'll go on the record that I, I think there's a better than 50% chance that the financial situation we find ourselves in today is worse than the one we found ourselves in in <sighs> 2007. Really? Um, yeah. You're going to bum me out going into but, but the I'm weekend I'm not bumming here? you out. I mean, do you want to hear the truth or not? I do want to hear the if truth. If you don't want to hear the truth, turn to CNN. If you want to <laughs> hear the truth, then stay with us here at Wake Up um, Carolina. Good point. No matter how um, morbid it may be, the truth is that we have – um, and we talked a lot about this, and I don't know if we can talk enough about it, to be honest with you, but we've talked about this um, this, uh, this fiscal stimulus, these, um, this decade long of ultra-low interest rates. Um, it has resulted in uh, excess, excessive deposits. In other words, the, the government prints all of this money People don't bury it in their mattress. What well, John's family member does, but the majority of people, that you know, put it in banks, and um, the banks have excessive deposits. They make decisions on what to do with the money. Once again, the banks aren't in the mattress business; they're in the, um, you know, the managing a bank business. So, so they begin um, investing these enormous uh, deposits uh, because, once again, the, the fiscal stimulus creates the excessive deposits. Um, so, the excessive deposit creation in the U.S. forced um, financial strategist to make decisions about as- asset liability management. So uh, when, when, the, when the people responsible for making the asset management liability decisions um, began investing in fixed in- income securities that were perfectly fine in, a, um, in, the, um, in the more than decade long of ultra low interest rates, but once we begin raising rates, these fixed in- income securities began to lose value. And um, I mean, I'll give you an example. Deutsche Bank's down 9% this morning because its credit default swaps have increased. The, the, um, the ability to purchase the failure of Deutsche Bank, <laughs> the default of Deutsche Bank, has gotten really expensive. So there's a likelihood that there's um, another example of contagion. Will there be another? I'm going to level with you. I mean, I was listening to um, Ray Dalio last night. Ray Dalio is the guy that founded Bridgewater Associates or Bridgewater Strategist. Um, he's, he's a unique dude. Um, he's gotten much older. I think he started, he graduated Harvard MBA in the seventies, uh, went to China in the eighties. He was one of these first leading, um, he says that when he went to China, he would carry a $10 calculator and they treated him. I mean, he would give it to the most important people in China. I mean, he's trying to do business in China. I guess he would have been the, um, one of the visionaries that kind of was the first to see the potential in, in China, but he would, um, he would buy these $10 Texas instrument calculators carry them to China, give them to some of the elites in China, and they were just, I mean, just unbelievably 
just couldn't believe that someone would bring them a magical device such as a, I mean, you buy a carton of Marlboros, now they give you a calculator. You know, I got one on my phone here. Sure. But um, but take, And he's one of these guys that has um, been preaching this, the decline of the American empire. And and we can get as philosophical as you choose. There's a um, there's a podcast, the second best podcast out there today. I mean, we know what the first best best podcast oh, is. Without a doubt. No Stop Lights with Ken Hart. Did we drop one yesterday? Uh, we did. Okay. We dropped it. Okay. We That's dropped right. one we yesterday dropped. at um, at 10 a.m. We'll do another Tuesday at 10 a.m. I did talk to Gahaley yesterday, and, I mean, he's likely to be here two, uh, Wednesday or Thursday of next week. Oh, yeah. Good. Uh, I mean, I don't have it. It's going to be one or the other. But but Robert lives this weird existence. Somebody's political consultant from Central Casting. But Robert texts me, um, do you have a second to talk? Yeah. So he sends me a video of a piece of property. And then he texts me, I was going to send you that before we talk. He's, he's got his eye on a piece of property oh. somewhere, and he thinks that I'm— He wants some advice, well, some he business thinks I'm advice. Huh? Of a, well, yeah, to, to some degree. And um, just one of the most interesting guys on the planet. I mean this sincerely is Robert Cahaley, and he'll be with us—excuse uh, well, excuse me. He will not be with you until the following week. We hope to put one in the can. I'm learning the the, the, the verbiage here. Dropping can. Yeah, all we hope to put one in the can podcast on, um, words. on Tuesday or Wednesday, and um, and it'll be with Robert Cahaley. He did he did kind of give me a little bit of inside information Ooh. about um, what's happening in the Republican primary as we speak. Newsflash, you ready? It's Trump or DeSantis. I mean, who <laughs> well, would have ever guessed? I said, thanks, Robert. Boy, yeah. I would have never guessed that. But but when you look at some of the polling, and Robert's got some polling that hadn't been made public yet, um, it's proprietary. It's being paid for. Remember what Robert said? Robert's not a pollster. He is a strategist. He provides accurate information to wealthy people who are willing to pay a lot of money for it. So, he's a pollster. Um, but, but anyway, Monmouth says, uh, the Monmouth poll, most recent poll, has Donald Trump at 44%, Ron DeSantis at 36%, Mike Pence at 7%, Nikki Haley at 6%. In a three-way race, minus Pence, um, it's a little more competitive, Trump at 45, DeSantis at 40, Haley at 9, um, but in a three-way race without DeSantis, I mean, if DeSantis does not get in, it's Trump 67%, Haley 15%, Pence 11%. In other words, two of every three DeSantis voters break for Trump. Mm-hmm. So, so DeSantis has to make a decision. Sooner than later, I think, does he believe that he can consolidate enough America First Republicans with enough non-America First Republicans to beat Donald Trump in a Republican primary. Because listen, guys, I mean, it seems like a land far, far away. But the first debate is in, what, August? I mean, that's five months away. The election begins in January. of I mean, we're 10 months from casting ballots. So it's not that far away. And think about this, guys. From Memorial Day until Labor Day, people just aren't tuned in. I mean, they just aren't. People are on vacation. They're doing their thing. They're at the beach, at the mountains, um, on a cruise, doing whatever people do during the summer. Um, I've, I've said this for 10 or 11 years on the air. The campaign season starts after Labor Day, leading into November. Well, it's no different in the primary. People are not going to think much about Ron DeSantis, Donald Trump, Mike Pence, Nikki Haley, Mike Pompeo um, until about Labor Day. So DeSantis has to make a decision. But I think he's made the decision, and I think he's getting in. Um, But can he consolidate enough 
America First Republicans with enough non-America First Republicans. Because here's the um, here's the unknown here, and and this will happen. Rest assured. Um, I don't talk to Trump. I don't know Trump, but I've watched from afar his strategy. And here's what here's what Donald Trump will do. I mean, he's already needling DeSantis, Ron DeSanctimonious. And then DeSantis says, I don't know anything about paying porn stars. You know, I'm a school, a, a Boy Scout. I played mm-hmm. baseball at Yale. We don't do things uh, like that. Mm-hmm. So, so there's this back and forth. And it's, and it's, I mean, it's not blood and guts. I mean, it's not. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's a bit tepid. It's, it's not, you know, just getting after one another like you would expect two front runners in a campaign. Now, if DeSantis gets in, it, I mean, it turns into that. I mean, there's no question about it. DeSantis will go after Trump on COVID, on Fauci, on, uh, on the budget. I mean, there's some places there. Um, on neocons, I mean, when Trump talks about, you know, the, the end of neoconservatism, uh, Ron DeSantis will say, why'd you hire John Bolton? Really? Right. I mean, you know, but, but what but is, Trump- there anything, is there anything to be said about the trends of the polls? Because I've read polls that showed DeSantis was actually ahead of Trump in Republican primary polling in December. And then when they poll again in February, for example, they were even. And now Trump apparently is way I mean, ahead. Trump's been in the news. Trump's gained some sympathy. From this witch hunt in, in the Manhattan uh, District and Attorney's Office. Well, I mean, that is hard to believe. But, it, but, but DeSantis hadn't announced. And I think there's some people out there going, oh, screw it. If he doesn't want to run, he doesn't want to run. You know, you kind of punish him at the poll. But, but here's the deal. And here's the game changer. You ready? If DeSantis gets in, I mean, he's legitimate. You're not in your head. You know him. And he's a top tier oh, candidate. There, there is no question about it. And I like him. If Donald Trump loses the Republican primary, it will be only to one person on this earth. And his name is Ron DeSantis. Nikki Haley has zero chance of beating Donald Trump in a, in a primary. Mike Pence has zero chance. Mike Pompeo has zero chance. Chris Christie has zero chance. Ron DeSantis has a 50% chance of beating Donald Trump in a Republican primary. Unless, unless Trump can immediately link him to Paul Ryan, Jeb Bush, and Karl Rove. And that will be the Trump strategy. Once again, I don't talk to Trump. I don't have any idea what he's got on his mind. I mean, I would imagine he's a bit consumed by some of these other, you know, witch hunts that are happening all over the country. But if Donald Trump can pin Ron DeSantis down as being a guy in bed with Paul Ryan, with Jeb Bush, with Karl Rove, DeSantis has quite the uphill battle to win that primary. Now, now, if DeSantis wins, here's where Robert and I talked last night. Let's say DeSantis, let's say there's Trump fatigue. I mean, we know there's Trump derangement. Let's say there is Trump fatigue. There are people out there, friends of mine, who like Trump, who would normally give Trump the benefit of the doubt. But their options now include DeSantis. So because of that Trump fatigue, I mean, I'm thinking of one in particular. He's told me this a hundred times. I'm just tired of him, man. He wears me out. I didn't sign up for this. I like his policies. I like what he stands for. I kind of like the way he did it. But damn, I'm tired of the drama. I'm tired of every time I turn around, the American president sees at some sort of um, crossroads, you know, doing something that we've never, ever done before. Now, I would argue Trump didn't bring all on himself. I mean, Trump is no doubt a very controversial political figure. But but a lot of the um, a lot of the trouble Trump didn't create for himself. I mean, we've got a letter from 2018 saying basically case dismissed but we have an impending indictment and eventual arrest, we think, from a grand jury that didn't meet yesterday or the day before. I'm just saying, I don't have any idea. Maybe the subways broke down in, uh, in Manhattan, but they didn't meet yesterday, nor did they meet the day before. 
Um, they're not going to meet today, so we're on hold as it relates to you know what one grand juror may have said uh, to another. We don't know any of that. But but here's what Robert says, and I don't think Robert would mind me telling you this. If DeSantis has made a deal with Paul Ryan, Jeb Bush, and Karl Rove, and DeSantis, because of that support, is able to convince enough, and I would call the Trump fatiguers, you know, the ones that say, hey, man, I like Trump, but I'm going to DeSantis because I'm just, I mean, I'm an America firster, but I'm just fatigued of all this stuff. And they vote for DeSantis. Robert believes Trump will blow the Republican Party sky high. I mean, he will encourage people to stay home. He may run as a third-party candidate. He may run in some sort of write-in fashion. But but Robert believes, once again, if if Ryan, Bush, and Rove have gotten to DeSantis and they've made some sort of deal. Now, there's rumors out there. And I, I've got no problem with DeSantis meeting with Ryan. I've got no problem with DeSantis meeting with Jeb Bush. I've got no problem with DeSantis meeting Karl Rove. i got a big problem with him making a deal with any of those. I mean, he can meet with those guys and say, look, fellas, I mean, I get it. I understand where you want the party to go, but that's not where the voters want the party to go. And, and what, what is a political party intended to do? Represent Paul Ryan, Jeb Bush, and Karl Rove? I mean, does the party belong to us four, or does it belong to the people? And if it, belongs, if, it, if it belongs to the people, it's pretty clear that they don't agree with the policies of Roe, Bush, and, and Paul Ryan. So that's how I think this is um, beginning to shake. In other words, there's not a lot of controversy. I mean, there's not a lot of uncertainty. The only controversy and uncertainty is whether DeSantis gets in or not. And, and I was as sure as I'm sitting behind this microphone a week ago he would. I'm a little less sure this morning. And, and I think the reason I'm a little less sure this morning is the, the way the Manhattan DA has handled this case. I think it has empowered Trump and, 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 a, and it put, I mean, it's put him in a more formidable position and place um, to move forward. And, and, you know, I understand that a lot of you believe, wow, why are we worried about the presidency of 2024 when it's only, you know, March of 2023? Well, just think about it. We have our first presidential debate in August. And I just told you, we're, we're about to get into summer, at least spring. And when we get into summer, people check out. I mean, they're just not paying close attention to politics. So we're really, I mean, we're really the precipice of the beginning of a campaign. DeSantis, if he announces, it'll probably be in May. I think um, John Decker mentioned that yesterday, conclusion of the uh, legislative session in Florida. But but he's got to make a call sooner than later. And if he's consulting with people, I hope it's not Paul Ryan, Jeb Bush, and Carl Rove. Now, as a radio show host, you ready? Mm-hmm. Clearly, uh, excuse me, solely for entertainment purposes and and financial reasons um it would be right ratings and revenue that's always important in this business i'd love for the news to break that desantis did consult with jeb bush with carl rove and with paul ryan and we had to figure out whether he was their candidate or not is he an america first candidate or is he an establishment candidate disguised as an america first candidate that will be the narrative trump uh pitches i mean that, that you know once again we know what desantis will say Aren't you tired of this guy? I mean, he won't insult Trump. I mean, he, he'll say things indirectly like he did um, a couple of days back when he said, look, I don't know much about paying porn stars. I mean, I just don't. You know, I don't know about hush money and, and non-disclosures. And I, I just, that's not my, <laughs> I played baseball at Yale. I'm a Boy Scout. I do the right thing. Um, I'm normal. You're going to get a normal presidency. There are a lot of voters ready um, for that or appear to be ready uh, for that. But, but once again, if, 
DeSantis gets in, Trump will immediately, and I'm talking about like a, uh, you've seen the, um, remember the uh, the Tiger King or whatever it was, when they throw the meat in the cage with all those big cats, and they would just devour it in no time. Sure. I mean, they would just tear it to shreds. And um, if you ever think you have a chance against one of those animals, watch that scene, and you realize you just don't. I mean, they would tear you to pieces in no time. Here's the word pounce. Yeah. He will pounce. Well, I mean, and Trump will pounce. I mean, Trump will pounce like only Trump can pounce. <laughs> and it will be, you know, I'm not running against Ron DeSantis. I'm running against Ron DeSantis, Paul Ryan, Jeb Bush, and Carl Rove. And if he can't sell that message, now this is where Kahaley says, if he can't sell that message, in other words, if there are enough America Firsters who have Trump fatigue and still go for DeSantis, then Trump will blow it up. I mean, he'll just, he, he will encourage his voters, don't you vote for a Republican. They are a, a sheep in wolf's clothing. They're disloyal. You know how he is about loyalty and, and disloyalty. Mm-hmm. Now, now, once again, that's total speculation. I have no idea how this plays out. But, but a week ago, I was 100% convinced that Ron DeSantis was going to announce a candidacy for president of the United States. I'm still 90%. But there's 10% that says something's kicking out there, and he's not sure it's time to lose. Take a break. Back in just a few moments. You know, I did ask Robert, and I think you'd find this interesting. I know you would, Rev. I did ask Robert, uh, you know, about polling and the adjustments they made. I mean, they, they didn't do as well in 2022 as they did in 16, 18, and 20. Uh, didn't do as well in 20 as they did in 16 and 18. Uh, the 2020 presidential election was done under COVID requirements. In other words, there were a lot of things allowed that aren't normally allowed um, I mean, Robert elaborated, and I understood some of the elaborations. Some got me a little confused. But at the end of the day, they have remodeled, and the model is is almost twofold. There's a model for states that don't allow ballot harvesting nor private financing of campaigns, and there's a model that does. And in the 24 states that have outlawed private financing of campaign, and to some degree, ballot harvesting, they trust their models within one half a point. In the models that that are, are are taken in states that allow private financing of campaigns and ballot harvesting, you overstate the Democrat by two and a half points. Wow! Wow! What does that tell wow you? Wow is right. I mean, that's a staggering percentage. I mean, when he said that, I'm like Robert. That can't be true. He said no in Pennsylvania. I mean, if a candidate, if a Republican candidate is within one point, they're going to lose by a point and a half. In Arizona, if they're within a point, they're going to lose by a point and a half. Now, that's, I mean, that, there, there's a margin of error associated with that two and a half uh, point privilege polling. But, I mean, he was talking about how hard it is now uh, because I've said it, and Robert kind of agrees with the way I've said it. We, we've turned unlikely voters into likely voters, unregistered voters into registered voters, and it's hard for a pollster to pick that up when there's a history of doing it a certain way. But they basically landed at Trafalgar, that um that in the states that allow ballot harvesting, uh, private financing of campaigns, and there's some debate on how many states allow. There'll be lawsuits and there'll be verbiage in and legislation. You know how that goes here and too. Whereas, the hell does that mean? I don't hear into and whereas. You know, right. um, <laughs> why can't you say, hey, you can't do this, but you can do that. <laughs> But in some of this verbiage, it's where into and yeah. or where as. make it sound and, legal yeah, and complicated. Like, you know, Jefferson and Hamilton talked that way. We don't have to. I mean, I don't think it would bother them much if we said ain't and y'all instead of where into. And um, 
and and some of the other uh, verb. But anyway, I, I just thought that was very interesting. That um, so if you're disturbing, Republican, actually, to me, me, no. Here's what it says to me, Rev, and okay. I have to say this: Trump our, or DeSantis are a far more dynamic candidate than Joe Biden. I mean, there is no question about that. Joe Biden would be as listless a candidate as anybody could ever put up. I mean, the guy walks like he's on a permanent sheet of ice. I mean, he has this gaze in his eyes. I mean, we just can't make heads right. or tails. I mean, does he know where he is or not? It's not as Joe Biden in control of the country's economy and military. Does Joe Biden honestly know where he is today? Um, but it doesn't matter. I mean, when you've got that building advantage, when you've got, because it doesn't matter about South Carolina. Guess what, guys? We're going to vote for DeSantis or Trump. I mean, I know you've got a preference. If Mike Pence is our nominee, he wins South Carolina. He wins in some of the red states. He wins Oklahoma. He wins Wyoming. He wins Montana. Um, Joe Biden is going to, or the Democrats are going to win California. They're going to win New York. They're going to win uh, Michigan, excuse me, um, Illinois. They're going to win, uh, Michigan to be up for grabs. They're going to win Connecticut, New Hampshire, some of these marginal states, um, or some of these um, super majority states. But but the only way to win the, the presidency is, is to win I mean, I, you know, once again, I think the Republicans are going into this 2024 cycle in a little better shape than than 2020 because Ohio and Florida seem to be safe. I mean, who knows? But right now, Ohio has taken on uh, private financing of campaigns and ballot harvesting. I mean, it was already leaning red. I think it's more red than ever now because, once again, they've addressed some of the ills of 2020 and the way we voted um, during COVID, Florida, thanks to Ron DeSantis, I don't care if you're the biggest Trump fan in America, you got to give DeSantis some credit there. I mean, he's got Florida on lockdown. I mean, Florida is red, and that's going to help whomever is the uh, Republican nominee. So, so if it's Trump, I mean, Trump needs to shake DeSantis's hand and say, hey, man, I know we went at it tooth and nail, but thank you for what you did in Florida because you don't have to invest millions of dollars in Florida or hundreds of millions. You got to invest million because you don't take anything for granted. So you got to compete in Ohio. You got to compete in Florida, but you don't have to worry as much about those two states. So you now, I, I'll, I'm not going. Well, I mean, I, I guess I can. Um, I did ask Robert about Georgia. He's he's more confident now because of the of the law changes okay. and, the, and the presidential cycle. I mean, he thinks they <laughs> even, have, though, even though even though it didn't work out in 22. Well, I mean, in 22 he blames Kemp. A lot for that. Um, Herschel was a different candidate. Fair enough. I mean, he, you sure, know, I, 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 I still believe this. If Herschel had gotten elected, the Republican touch football team gets a lot better. I mean, there's no <laughs> question about that. And I would imagine the gym gets used more if Herschel gets elected because the dude looks like he could play today. I saw him a couple of days ago at some event, and he looks like he did uh, maybe not exactly like he did to George, but he looks damn close <laughs> to being in football shape uh, at, what, 60 years old, 61 um, years old. But but Robert believes that we've done things. But that's why I'm excited about the podcast, because I want him to take you behind the scenes of, you know, how we work through these. Um, well, I mean, well, what, what is it like to, to be on top of the world and be the preeminent pollster in America and then not do so well? You know, because the shelf life of being right but it changes. There was a day we trusted Monmouth. There was a day we trusted the CNN. There was a day we trusted NBC, Wall Street Journal polling. And Robert became the most trusted pollster um, in the Republican primary. He still believes in his Republican primary voting. But think about this. The Republican primary vote is not tainted nor distorted by voting uh, by private financing of campaigns. 
or ballot harvesting. So they still have utmost confidence in what their primary polling says. So the data he's provided to people right now who are willing to pay for it, he thinks is very trustworthy. I mean, where is Trump? Where is DeSantis? What happens to this race if Pence doesn't get in, but DeSantis does? I mean, those are the sorts of questions he's being asked by, I mean, it would be the Chamber of Commerce. It would be uh, the American Business Association. It would be by uh, the American Bankers Association. They're trying to hedge who the nominee likely will be or not. So he provides this information. But once again, in the Republican primary, you're not accounting for any of the shenanigans that go along with um, some of the general election voting. And uh, But anyway, he'll be with us next week. And I don't think he'd mind me sharing uh, with you some of that some of that information. But he, it's just so interesting to me because I am a, I mean, I, the, the candidate sees the campaign a certain way. The consultant and pollster sees the a strategist sees the campaign in a different sort of way. So Robert and I lived that for a year and a half. I mean, I, as the candidate, I mean, I see things a certain way. He is a consultant. He see things. And did you always agree? No, we, we, we very often didn't and agree. How did you settle well, those that, disagreements? That, that's interesting. I don't know exactly. Uh, and I don't know that we ever settled everything. I mean, Robert would always defer at the end and say, look, it's your money. You're, you're the boss. I mean, your name's on the sign. It's not Robert for Lieutenant Governor. It's Ken. So, so you know, I want to help you make the best decision you possibly can. That's what you hired me for. Now, every now and then, Robert would lose his cool and, you know, threaten to walk off or quit and tear the contract up. We had three or Ooh. four of those. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, that Do tell. Up. And three or four times I threatened to fire him. And, <laughs> I mean, of course that yeah, happens. Right? I mean, that, that's just natural. And but but at the end of the day, we both wanted the same thing. I mean, he needed to win for his brand. I needed to win win for my brand. And we've uh, you know when you go through that, and then you go through a political crap storm like I did or with him, uh, it builds a bond that is fairly enduring. So um, eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. But again, so he has agreed to to come be on the podcast. We'll record it next week and distribute but, but I've told it. you he lives a life right. of political. Cons- we could call Robert Cahaley Wednesday morning. And say, we're ready, or you come in today or tomorrow. And he could say, hey, man, I decided to go to the Formula One race in Monaco. <laughs> but I've, I've told you nice. this before. I had a situation during my campaign, and I needed Robert. I mean, something had happened. It was internal within the, was one of, one of the, I don't know, one of the, um, one of, one of the, one of the staff got mad with another staff and something happened. I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was, um, it was something he needed to handle. It didn't, I didn't need to be bothered with that. So I called Robert. What the hell is going on? Are you, are you not handling this? I mean, this needs to be handled. I said, I said where are you, somebody? You could barely hear him on the phone. I said, where are you? He was like in Saskatchewan, Canada or something, <laughs> goose hunting. I'm like, what are you doing? I mean, we, we <laughs> wow. But uh, but but he's a, he's a single guy. You know, he's a political consultant. He does what he wants to do, when he wants to do, and uh, and how he wants to do. But, yeah, he's decided or he's um he's scheduled to be here either Wednesday or Thursday. I told him I had to get with you. About it's just some of the I said, I said Robert, all I do is ask you questions and talk to you. <laughs> Rev does all the hard work behind the scenes that makes this um that makes this boat stay afloat, um so to speak. Mm-hmm. So um so so let's go back to Biden Be- because I sense once again that there's a little trepidation with the Biden team about him running for reelection. But it doesn't matter, does it? I mean, really and truly, does it matter? The the remember the saying we've discussed this week: you can indict a ham sandwich. I mean, a grand jury sure. can indict a ham sandwich. You're, you're not allowed. And, and I, I read up on this not before last. You can't withhold certain exculpatory evidence, but there's no cross-examination. Um, in other words, you can rig it, but not completely. 
That's kind of the way I look at it. That's a weird way to look at it, but I think that's a, a pretty proper interpretation. You can rig a grand jury, but you just can't rig it all the way. I mean, you got to give some ability for exculpatory evidence, and that's the 2018 letter that is rumored, Jeff. Rumored. I'm not reporting that as fact because we don't know that to be fact. But it's yeah, rumored. Twitter, Twitter is the source well, again, I mean, tw- right? Twitter's the for source. For the most part. And I saw it a couple of other places. But but it was um reported. It was speculated. Nobody said we know for sure that this is what happened. But one of the rumors as to why the grand jury hearing got called off two consecutive days is a juror made another juror aware of this letter that basically closed the case and was not excluded as part of the exculpatory evidence. And maybe a juror goes to somebody in charge of the grand jury proceedings, somebody at the DA's office, and says, hey, I mean, I'm hearing there's this letter. You know, Joe over here, juror number seven, told me there's this letter that you guys aren't allowing us to see. I don't want to put my, I mean, I don't want to sign up for something that is just farcical and this, you know, um, dishonest. And uh, now, once again, that is reported. Nobody knows if that is the truth or not. The truth is that they didn't meet Wednesday, they didn't meet yesterday, and I don't think they're going to meet today. I mean, I saw a report on NBC News this morning that they're not scheduled to meet today. So that means if there's going to be an indictment, it'll obviously not be. Um, and I'll tell you, I think Trump knew. I mean, I, in a world of BS, he's the best BSer ever. I mean, in all honesty. And I think Trump knew that, that so, I mean, I, 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 this is total speculation. Trump probably tampered with the grand jury. I mean, he probably had somebody. You're nodding your head with <laughs> Would that surprise you? No. I mean, Trump probably floated. I mean, th- there's no telling with him. But but I can see somebody like him kind of floating a letter, bringing some concern amongst members of the grand jury, and they begin internally debating whether or not this is a smart thing to do. Because you doubt, I mean, in Manhattan, Trump got, what, 11% of the vote <laughs> in Manhattan? So it ain't hard to find a never-Trumper. I mean, you can find a never-Trumper in Manhattan for sure. He lost 89 to 11%. In that, um, in that, you know, uh, in that district. So, um, but, but I, yeah, something tells me that somebody in the Trump orbit floated some information that got to the grand jury that, that kind of alarmed the, um, and, and all of a sudden, you know, cause we remember Trump said, I'm going to be arrested Tuesday. I'm going to be arrested Tuesday. From him. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so he puts the pressure on the grand jury, <laughs> but he speeds up the process. In other words, now he has an expectation of timeline. I mean, really and truly, think think about how brilliant that, you could say that's the most careless thing an American president's ever done. Well, it's not. I mean, it is somewhat careless to tamper around with the judicial system, but it worked. I mean, it it really created an almost expectation of the consuming public. What scenario makes the DA office in uh, Southern Manhattan look the worst? Yeah. It's where they they couldn't even get the grand jury to You can't close the deal. Yeah. You know, I mean, you're going to arrest me. Well, come get me. I mean, here it is. You know, so he floats the notion. And they still may do it. I mean, they they may. But but if if you've got some concern amongst the grand jury, they don't pass it along. They don't refer it as, you know, a positive. Some word out there. I mean, I I listened to a lawyer talk the other night. I mean, it's it's almost like a clean bill of health, so to speak. Um, We've done our job here. Um, The evidence is inconclusive, but it is... uh, concerning enough to pre, you know to bring charges and let's have a trial and figure out whether he whether he did a, some some degree of me says we should abolish the grand jury I mean it really it, it, it's absurd that that someone is going to be accused of a crime and you're going to present evidence that is not going to be cross-examined 
I don't understand that. That just doesn't make any sense to me. Now, I'm, I'm someone who went through a grand jury hearing. I mean, a grand jury referred my political um, what campaign finance story to a um, to an official law enforcement agency. And I just remember, I mean, I've told you the story of my brother and, and the two words he uttered when he walked out of the grand jury, yeah. which I won't utter over the radio because I like keeping this job. 843-661-0937. We'll take a break. Back in a few. Let's clean this up the best we know how as it relates to grand juries. So here's my understanding of the grand jury laws. I mean, there are different laws in different states, but there have been some court decisions that say you can't. I mean, I understand grand juries are there to provide an indictment. There's no doubt about it. I mean, they are there to try to convince people we need to have a trial to decide guilt or innocence. But I'll give an example, and this is my understanding of, uh, and this is, I mean, to me, it's, it's, it's still favorable to uh, the prosecution. But if the prosecution said that Dave robbed a bank and they present evidence that Dave's fingerprints are on a bag of money in the back of his car that came from the bank, that's, that's pretty incriminating information. But Dave Baker was in the hospital having his gallbladder uh, removed. When the bank was robbed, they can't not allow the grand jury to hear that testimony. I mean, they just can't. I mean, that's 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 beyond the pale. Now, if Dave can't account for where he was, th- then there's no, you know, Dave Baker can say, well, I wasn't anywhere near that bank. Well, we'll find out. I mean, we'll, you know, we'll have a trial and find out. Well, all I know is we've got a bag of money in the back of your car and your fingerprints are on this bag. But if Dave Baker can prove via you know medical records and hospital records that when the bank was robbed i was in room 307 getting my gallbladder taken out you can't withhold that information from a grand jury and i mean you wonder why they'd ever bring that case but i'm using that as an extreme example but but when somebody says there is no exculpatory evidence in a grand jury that's just not true there is i mean certain states require that 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 be made known to a grand jury otherwise a grand jury i mean you have to question the credibility of anything they did if they well, I mean, didn't that, have the, I mean, something that is so cut and dry. And I've never understood the notion of a grand jury because once again, um, the grand jury basically says, whomever put the grand jury in place basically said, well, eventually we'll have a trial to decide whether you're innocent or guilty, but somebody's already been through the grand jury. I mean, that, that's no fun. I can personally attest. That's no fun. I mean, you're a punching bag. You're a pinata. You don't have a chance to say anything in your defense. I mean, the people that believe in you, that trust in you, I mean, they're sitting there being examined and, and they have, I mean, it's just, it's so unfair. And I've never understood why we allow that to be the case. And in some states, I don't want to say how many, but in some states, Dave Baker being in room 307 at the hospital, getting his gallbladder taken out, would not be allowed to be a part of the hearing. And that's absurd. Mm. I mean, that's why people don't trust the man. <laughs> I know, because what's the goal? I mean, don't you want to get to the truth? Well, I mean, no, think of this, Rev. I had a guy tell me this one time. What, what, is, what is the definition of a prosecutor? I mean, he's trying to prosecute you. I mean, he's sure. not. Nobody says, hey, on this side, we have truth seeker number one. <laughs> and on this side, we have truth seeker number two. And on, in this corner, we have, you know, the guy with the blonde hair trying to do the right thing. And in this guy, you know, this corner, we got the guy with the dark hair trying to do the right thing. Or the lady with the red dress on is trying to do the right thing. No. I mean, it's a confrontational process, and I've just never understood why, why a state. I mean, imagine if you're in a grand jury, and you're in one of these states, and there's a bag with your fingerprints, and it's full of the money that came from the bank, and it's in your car, but you couldn't have done it 
because you're in room 307 of the hospital getting your gallbladder taken out. But you've still got to go stay in trial in some of those places. Now, you'd love to think that law enforcement would never bring that that um, you know, that to the grand jury, but I found out the hard way. Ah, trust the man, you'll get exactly what you deserve. Let's go to the phone. Here's Breeze. Good morning. Hey, y'all. What's up, guys? Oh, I heard you talk about Pennsylvania. <clears throat> they have no voter integrity laws. I mean, they uh, they stay elected a dead man, and then they sent the um guy from uh, y'all Frankenstein up to Washington to immediately put himself in a hospital. There's not a city in Pennsylvania that anyone in their right mind would want to live in. So, I mean, so. That's why they're all moving to the coast, Breeze. Well, so let's say you're a school teacher, kid, (laughs) and you work in there brainwashing your children, being an obedient student, you know, obedient subject of the state, a good citizen, and you brainwash these kids for 30 years, and you say, well, it's time for me to retire. But in the wonderful utopia of Pennsylvania, which is run by the Democrats, you can't afford to retire. And if you could afford to retire, then would you want to retire anywhere, anywhere in, in any city in Pennsylvania? Absolutely not. But you can't afford to. It's even higher in New York. So Pennsylvania's got stage four cancer. New York's got stage five. So you say, well, you know what? I can't afford to retire here, so I will, I will move down to South Carolina. And then I will sit there, call in a radio station in Florence, and tell the dumb redneck from Papago how stupid are you and all of your friends are because y'all vote, y'all don't vote Democrat. Because look at the wonderful job that I've been able to do with with my state up in Pennsylvania. Now I guess if you look at it from that way, you serve thirty years of pure purgatory and hell in Pennsylvania and save your money so you can retire down here to down here to God's country. But then what do you do? You want all of us to vote like you voted and destroy our state the same way you did. So, you know, when you come down here and you start trying to lecture us like we're a bunch of back back hayseed rednecks and brush our teeth with a hay rake, you need to look at what the hell you did to your old state before you come down here and tell us how wonderful your Democrat, communist, fascist, godless, piece-of-crap policies are. Thank you, Breeze. But but isn't that but thank you, Breeze. But isn't that what we all worry about? All the growth along the coast. I mean, isn't that what a lot of South Carolinians worry about? We talk about it. Yeah. I mean, it's my wife would get angry when I say this, but she just has to put up with it anyway. When my wife said, "I'm sure they're good people, but they're not like us." I mean, I remember her saying that, and my wife wouldn't hurt a flea. No, I would, Uh, but my wife would not hurt anybody's feelings. But but she said, and I quote, "I'm sure they're good people." They're just not like us. And we certainly don't have a right to build a wall around our state and say, hey, send us your resume before you apply for entry. But it is different. I mean, the coast of South Carolina is not the coast I grew up in. I mean, I, grew, I was born in 1963. I grew up going to um, Garden City and Surfside. I mean, that was a big deal to me, going to Garden City and Surfside. If I go, and I'm going this afternoon, if I go to Pauly's Island this afternoon and I go into a restaurant, I can assure you, at 536-637, I'm the minority. There are more non-native South Carolinians there than there are native um, South Carolinians, and it's different. I mean, it's just uniquely different. I just hope, as Breeze says, they don't bring some of those political proclivities down south with them. I want South Carolina to remain red. I want South Carolina to remain conservative. I respect people that have a fundamental disagreement with me. But I don't want my state's politics hijacked 
by people who ruined other states by their political proclivities. And I'll fight for that. I mean, I'll tell you, I mean, I say I'll never run for office again. That would be one circumstance that would lead me to throw my name back in the hat Mm -hmm. and take on whomever is trying to just fundamentally transform our state from what it historically has been to something I just don't want any part of. Let's go to the phone. Matt in Orangeburg listening to WTQS. Hey, Matt. Hey, I was speaking about the grand jury process, and Ken is all over this uh, with the right darts. And I certainly believe personally that the grand jury, I I spent 27 years in law enforcement around the grand jury process, and I teach it now at, at the college level. The grand jury can certainly be weaponized by the prosecution. They can certainly uh, go in with the intent, and certainly here in this case that we're talking about with Donald J. Trump, is the fact that we're looking at a man and we're trying to find charges against the man. We're going beyond the crime and then trying to figure out who did it and then, oh, Donald J. Trump did it. So we're certainly weaponizing it there. But understand this about the grand jury. It's a probable cause hearing. Those grand jurors have the ability, and I think that's what's happening with this case, they have the ability the ability to question whoever the witnesses are. They have the ability to question law enforcement or the prosecutors who are bringing this case forward. And you bring up this instance, it's not adversarial at that point. Well, it's not adversarial at the warrant requirement. In other words, when a law enforcement officer goes into a neutral or detached judge to get a warrant, It's just him, her, and the judge. There's no adversarial part there. The first part of the system that really becomes adversarial would be that preliminary hearing where now the defense is at the table with the judge, with the prosecution, and asking the questions of, wait a minute, what about all this exculpatory evidence? You would hope the, the scenario you gave was perfect. You would hope that if Dave was in the hospital, that, in fact, law enforcement would go, wait a minute, he couldn't have done it. Let's move on. There's got to be something else here. Maybe he's connected to the robbery, but he didn't do the robbery or something like that. You would hope that. But again, in this case, clearly prosecutors can weaponize the, the grand jury. But it's always we're picking people out of the community. These are jurors, and they have the ability to ask questions. But let me stop you sure. there if you don't mind. You're obviously familiar with this more more than I am. But, but most people are meek and mild. Most people are not going to speak out. Uh, human nature is what human nature is. You sound like you would. I think I would. But the majority of people in the grand jury, they, they just, I mean, I can just see someone saying, I've got a question, but I'm not sure I want to be the one to ask that question. Is that a legitimate concern? Well, sure. That, that, and, and you see this not only with the grand jury, but with regular juries. When we, uh, when I was at the prosecutor's office, we often, you know, you're, you're doing jury selection. And so you're looking for jurors. Uh, which jurors do you think would be good for this case? And we always put them into a couple of categories. We got people that are the leaders. These are the people that we know are going to speak out and speak their mind. But then we also identified people that we believed would be the followers. They're just going to sit by and kind of bide their time and go with whatever the crowd says and not say anything. But you would hope that when you're in a grand jury situation behind closed doors, that this is your opportunity as a juror to ask the important questions, to ask the relevant questions of, wait a minute, was Dave couldn't have been there? There's an allegation that Dave may have not have even been there at the time of the crime. Why aren't we hearing this? And poke and prod law enforcement or prosecutors, even within that grand jury vessel, to do that. But certainly, it's again, you can weaponize the grand jury. 
and I think that's what's happening here. Um, and the, and just like you said before, it's a, it's a known fact that you can indict a ham sandwich in a grand jury because if nobody says anything, then we you know we just have this we're going to roll through the system. But there are, you know, this I still think this is the best system worldwide. Mm-hmm. There are other probable cause mechanisms. You're not going to get it with the judge and the law enforcement officer. Nobody's going to. You would hope that the officer would say that in the to, with a warrant. But again, you're and think about the level of evidence that you're looking for. We're literally just looking for probable cause. We're not trying to indict him beyond a reasonable doubt. Let me ask you so this. Looking, Let me ask you this. Would professional jurors make the judicial system more effective and more fair and more equitable in America? When you say professional, what do you mean by? Well, I'm talking about somebody who's been vetted, somebody who's qualified, somebody who's demonstrated the competence and aptitude and ability to discern and and well, and they, comprehend and sort through, you know, what what well, is obviously nonsense and what what could potentially be true. Well, that's a great. I love the questions. Thanks. <laughs> As I've gotten on radio show now, um, um, but we we do vet them. Remember, these are jurors, yeah. and so we bring them in. And the one thing that a judge is going to say when he uh, talks to jurors in a trial setting or even in the grand jury setting, one thing they're going to say is, "Bring your common sense to the table. Don't don't let that be the part out." And so. When you're looking to pick a jury, sometimes you're looking for educated people. But most of the time, in my years, we steered away from educated people. We just wanted people to come in with common sense. And so when you say, are they professional, do you just take your oath as what it is? And are you going to be that diagnostic person that weighs the evidence? Again, the grand jury is a lopsided issue because it's, it's not adversarial. Um, and so the prosecution can go behind closed doors, law enforcement behind closed doors, and say whatever they, whatever the, whatever evidence they want to present. Like you brought out, that this exculpatory. And so, and and there are uh, there are states that obviously say if you've got exculpatory evidence at the time that the grand jury meets, you need to present that as well. But certainly, the government is bound to turn over exculpatory evidence. Sure. Thank you, sir. Well, I mean, that, that's kind of, I appreciate you calling. Very enlightening and informative there. Um, I mean, as someone who has lived through the grand jury process, now, I mean, I wasn't, I mean, it was not a murder trial. It was not a, you know what I mean? It was not a violent crime. I mean, I, I, it was a campaign finance violation, but it was high profile because I was a um, an elected official, statewide elected official. But I can remember, I mean, that's the first time I've ever had a dealing with the uh, judicial system in America. I've never been in any sort of um, harm's way. I mean, I made some stupid calls in business, but you kind of work that out in some of the, um, uh, some of the non-judicial ways, uh, you know where I'm headed. But but that, the first time in my life that I'd ever had a dealing with the judicial system was the was the grand jury. And I told Rev yesterday we we're talking about the grand jury and and the Trump situation. My brother went and um, appeared before the grand jury, and I can't quote him directly, but it was um, to the effect of "You're screwed." <laughs> you know when, when, when he walked out of that room. In fact. He called me the second he walked out of the room because I lost him when he got on the elevator to go downstairs from the grand jury um, room. He said he's never seen anything like that. I mean, he tried to, you tried to um, argue, you try to answer a question, um, but there's this, but there's that. And they would just cut him off and say, we didn't ask you that. You've given us all the information uh, that we're, we're expecting of you. And I mean, I just remember, I mean, he called me the second he walked out of the, I guess, the chamber and said... Something to the effect of, you're screwed. Um, <laughs> 843-6610937. But, I mean, think about this, Rev. 
So if you're in one of the states that is not um, mandated or, or legally bound to offer up this exculpatory evidence, Rev's got to go get a lawyer. I mean, Rev's got to right. spend money. Rev's bogged down to the criminal system. Rev's uh, church fellow church members are going, what did, what did Dave do? I mean, I never thought Dave would do anything like that. Dave robbed a bank. <laughs> Dave Baker robbed a bank. <laughs> no, I mean, he's in, he's in the hospital at the time. How do you get that reputation back, right, Rev? Exactly. I mean, imagine a imagine a system in America. In your scenario here, what I mean, there's I, a, I couldn't even have done. There it. is a state in America. I can't quote the state. There is a state in America. There is more than one state that would allow a prosecution, a team of prosecutors to not tell a grand jury that Dave Baker was in the hospital getting his gallbladder taken out when the bank was robbed. I mean, how can that be justice? I mean, I understand exactly. it's one-sided. I understand it's there to get an indictment, I guess. Uh, but, but that's bizarre to me that we've allowed that to be normalized. But we live in a nation that we allow these words to be said, and we kind of laugh about it, a perjury trap. I mean, I'll never forget a buddy of mine got in trouble, and he was going to meet with the FBI. And a lawyer friend of his found out and called him and said, where are you going tomorrow? He said, I got a meeting with the FBI at 3 o'clock. He said, who are you going with? He said, I'm going by myself. He said, I'm not, I don't have anything to hide. I'm going by myself. I know kind of sort of what they're going to ask me, and I know what my answers are. The friend said, no, you aren't. There is no way I'll let you go there by yourself. I mean, are we okay with that? Or are we okay with a justice system that allows the existence of a perjury trap? And we kind of whimsically and nonchalantly dismiss it or discount it as a, well, that's just the way it is. You know, we can indict a ham sandwich. <laughs> we got a perjury trap. <laughs> I mean, damn, really? Right. Is this the U.S. of A. or not? 843-661-0937. Back in a minute. I want to get back to this macro issue, the macro of all macros that we talked about a second ago. I mean, we're talking about the coast of South Carolina. We're talking about grand juries. We're talking about you know, exculpatory evidence. I mean, all of those matter in the grand scheme of things. There are no doubt little blocks make big blocks, big blocks make big buildings. Um, but but I want to get back to to what I consider to be uh, it's something I've been reading about, trying to better understand. Um, every now and then, something will gain my attention. Um, some of the uh, some of the book that Ray Dalio, Ray Dal- uh, Money Power, the Collapse of uh, Empires. Uh, I think of Sam and Darlington when he talks about the American Empire. Um, when you really break it down, Rev, and this gets real, real philosophical, and you'll probably look at me a little bit glazed. I was like, what's he talking about? I mean, I, if I don't understand it, I know he doesn't. He's just good at running his mouth about things he doesn't <laughs> understand uh, much about. But but when you really think about where we are today, you know, um, uh, excuse me, uh, somebody called this morning and, and talked about, you know, this may be the last chance we get. We don't get another election and if we screw this one up, you know, uh, it could be the end of America as we know it. Um, we've had a few calls recently, mm-hmm. and I uh, can't remember who it was. But but anyway, um, I, it, it, we're getting closer to the point of it doesn't matter who the president is. It doesn't matter what party is in power. The macro is going to prevail. And and, and when we look at dynasties or empires or super superpowers, nothing is forever. I mean, nothing lasts forever and and i'm a big believer in we're in our we're in our end days now that doesn't mean the day after tomorrow is you know china overtakes america as the preeminent superpower but i think when you look at the macro and you really break it down and once again i'm gonna get as philosophical and historical as i can when you win a war 
there are there, there's a monumental change in the way the world works, especially when you have a world war. So in what well, the end of the Second World War would have been 1945. So we're about 80 years past that. To the victor go the spoils. So America gets to decide basically what the world looks like. I won the ovarian lottery. I was born 18 years after America won the Second World War. I mean, that would have been the heyday of America. I mean, once again, the winner of the war gets to decide the rules of the game. So we basically decided, hey, you get this, you get that. But at the end of the Second World War, think about this, Rev. We had 80% of the gold in the world, 50% of the world's GDP. We basically had control of the world. We had an economy. That, that began to really flourish. Why did it flourish? Because we're brilliant. We're better businessmen and women than the rest of the world. No, Europe was blown up to smithereens. I mean, there was no way to transact commerce in the majority of Europe. So, so we got real full of ourselves, which people tend to. I mean, if you're the guy with the power and, and we begin building these caste systems that allowed people to um, influence powerful people. In other words, we got Congress, you got a president, you got a treasury secretary, you got a Fed chair, you got all these powerful people in matters relating to policy. And how do you access that, Rev? I mean, how do you do? I mean, Stormy Daniels did it one way, but the majority <laughs> of it is done, you know, with um, with, with money, right? I mean, very very wealthy people. Well, I mean, you know that. I mean, there's an old saying in politics: behind every good man is a good woman. Behind the fall of every good man's another good woman. And so, um, I mean, many, many, many American politicians have um, have fallen be- because of that. But, but back to the serious subject. So we win the war, right? I mean, we're we're, we're the um, we're the knight in shining armor. I mean, we're uh, we're George Strait. We're not wearing the black hat. We got the white hat on in this one. Save the world. I mean, you're right. I mean, we're the good guys, so to speak. So we begin kind of um directly and indirectly telling the world how it should behave and how it should do. And, okay, Germany, you do this. Italy, you do that. Greece, you get over here. Russia, um, you do this. Um, what was left of Russia? I mean, imagine how many Russian men died in the Second World War. It's staggering. I mean, it's Poland. I mean, uh, it, Russian, I mean, it's, it's just mind-boggling, the human carnage left behind after the Second World War. But, but once again, winners decide. We decided. So we have shaped the world for about 80 years. The American empire has been in charge uh, of where you stand, what you do. 80% of the gold, 50% of the world's GDP was um, in the hands of, uh, you know, American politicians, American businessmen and women. And, and, and we did a pretty good job for what, 40 years, 50 years or so. And eventually somebody doesn't like the fact that there's one band or one team making all the rules. And that was the former Soviet Union. And, and along comes the Cold War. And, and you know, Russia was the, I mean, they, they were the, um, the mortal foe of America. So you had this Cold War. They build nuclear weapons, we'll build nuclear weapons. Why did Russia do this? Because they didn't like the fact that we were making all the rules. They didn't like the damn rules. I mean, they were communist. You know what I mean? That they, they, there was human atrocities in Russia after the Second World War, but but Ray Dalio makes a point that we have squandered our advantages, and it's not uncommon. It's what happens throughout history with almost every empire. I mean, you go through 
uh, world history. There, there's always been a rise of a superpower and then a, a dramatic decline and then another superpower. And, and he argues that war is normally the, the, uh, the distinguishing factor, the, um, the contributing force that leads to a transitioning or transfer of one team making the rules into another team um, making the rules. And I want to play something, if you don't mind, Rev. I got it here on my computer. I mean, just take what I just said. I mean, once again, you can disagree, you can agree. But, but it's my interpretation of world history in that we are now at the, at the we're, we're at a place now where another nation feels like we're vulnerable. And they don't like the fact that we made all these rules. It's not Russia. I mean, I know Mitt Romney says it's Russia. You know, I think it is. And I've said it since day one on this radio show. And the only reason that I'm a Peter Thiel acolyte is I think he understands that China is unbelievably ambitious in becoming the preeminent superpower in the world. And you know what that means? Replacing us as the pre. I mean, China doesn't have a burning desire to be a complementary superpower. China has a burning desire to be the lone soul superpower on the planet. And they know that we are beginning. I mean, we're, we're crumbling from within. I mean, we, we, you, we can't control our debt. I mean, we, we, transgenderism runs amok. And China sees that from afar. And China, I think, sooner than later, will seize the opportunity. They'll pounce at the opportunity. And, and you'll begin to see a dramatic decline of the American empire. Um, I know that's kind of out there, but uh, let, let's, Lex Friedman is one of these intellectuals on, on podcast. He gets Ray Dalio. Once again, Dalio graduated Harvard in the 70s, made a bunch of, bunch of money. He's got all these uh, worldviews that at one point in time were considered a bit extreme, um, not so extreme now. But let's go there and listen for about four, five, six minutes. Pause on that for a second. So these measures, I guess you don't want to sort of um... – romanticize any one measure or something like that, over-interpret any one measure. But is, is internal conflict always a bad thing? Is some is this a, is it a complicated calculation? Or do you kind of, the way we think about these measures that you've presented, we should be thinking like the higher, the better, the lower, the worse, or I mean, of course, depending on the- Well, measure. in many cases, the conflict that produces the revolution produces revolutionary changes that lead to uh, resolutions that and lead to new starts. Um, and so their short-term, uh, a short-term civil war mm -hmm. is a hellacious experience. And at the same time, it can be um, the transition to a new beginning. Um, also, there are different types of conflict. Uh, competition which makes things makes everything better is is a productive conflict whereas destructive conflicts um are um not good over the short time so you know that's how that those go so you, within each measure the story uh, is complicated <laughs> we, yeah but my measures are are sort of clear meaning how much political conflict, how much yes. um, uh, social conflict. Yes. In other words, you can measure conflict. You can measure fighting. You can measure crime rates. You can measure um, lots of different ways of conflict. So the measures are a composite of different types of internal conflict. What are some other interesting measures? Maybe if you can also mention like 
for me in particular interest is education and innovation. Yes. The classic cycle, the most important leading indicator is the quality of education. Most importantly, broad-based education drawn as a, uh, from the largest population because you can never tell who the talent is going to be, so where they're going to come from. So, for example, if you look at the Chinese dynasties, the great Chinese dynasties, um, and the Confucian approach, it was meritocratic of um, everybody could sit for exams and so on, broad base of drawing in the populations. And you see that if you go across societies, um, because that draws on the largest number of population to get education. And it also, um, that creates um, a, a reality and a uh, perception that the system is fairer equal opportunity, not just one of privilege. And that helps to create social stability. But education is not just uh, education in uh, understanding facts and so on. It is education in um, civility of how to behave together. And so if they're smart, they understand how to be productive because they work well together and they're productive. And then that leads to the next stage. You, you can see in the lines in the charts, we, I, I plotted these so that you could see in a typical cycle, you could see that education is the long leading uh, indicator. And then you could see, as you mentioned, um, that you, what you see is inventiveness and technology measures then follow. And you see then also competitiveness and world markets follows. For example, in the early stages of a cycle, the industries that they go into um, um, tend to be very basic industry because they have cheap labor, something like textiles and ma simple manufactured goods and so on. But as the education rises, then they move up the value chain to uh, tech, greater technologies and so on, which raises incomes and raises productivity. So yes, those, and, and you know, as, you, as you say, there are 18 different measures like that, but education um, and, and then civility and the inventiveness. So you see it reflected in, in who's inventing what. Um, and that corresponds then who's trading with, who's a big trading country and where's the value of economic output and what are per capita incomes. They all follow, follow those arcs. Yeah, like you said, the fascinating thing about your book, so there's philosophy, there's wisdom, uh, but there's plots. <laughs> yeah, you can <laughs> see it. So it's not just your opinion. It, it's kind of like uh, you can interpret it any way you like, uh, but you're just giving a lot of, of your own insights along with the numbers. If you were to look at the American nation, the American empire, and the trajectories looking into the future, given these measures, what is the trajectory that leads to the collapse of the American empire based on these measures? What are the concerning indicators? And if, um, if those break down further, what does that look like? Well, all of those indicators are concerning. Um, maybe uh, except for one, which is technology, the technology niche. Although even in that area, the United States is um, improving at a slower rate than is China for various 
advantages that they have there. They put out about eight times as many computer engineers. They have free data and so on. But if you look at them, so the financial is a, is, is a concern. The internal order, disorder, is a concern. Then if you look at education levels, the United States is in many ways, is, is losing its educational advantage. If you were to look at, compare it with China, um, if you take general public education in the United States, it's deteriorated uh, tremendously, even in comparison to developed countries. There are scores, PISA scores and so on, and it's you know something like 38th in the world or something, and that was a big plunge, average public education. If you look at the best universities in the world, the United States is unique in having the best universities in the world. So there are these privileged spots um, that are, you know, excellent, um, uniquely excellent. So when you look at the comparison, education in China is improving rapidly and it and the quantity is a quantity of educated people in the areas that they're moving in are is is greater and the resources that they're putting behind it is greater. And so you see the results are greater. Um, but um, it, it's sort of along the lines that I'm, I'm dealing with. If you were to follow through in terms of um, actual productions, I, I think, uh, you, you know, in terms of technologies, um, there are some areas that the United States is in a, in a lead at the moment. There's some areas that China's in a lead. But China's gaining um, very quickly. When I first went to China, 1984, I would bring $10 calculators and I gave them away as gifts to high-ranking people and they thought they were miracle devices. <laughs> um, right now, in terms of areas like quantum computing and AI and, and you know, many areas, um, you have a race going on. And so if you take the trajectory of the competitiveness, not just look at the current level, you have a situation where they're improving at a much faster rate. This is all good for the world if the world can get along. And the main thing I think is, um, in just in, in, in how do you have a healthy world and how do you have a strong economy and how do you have a strong situation is be strong. The United States' is war is with itself. That's the main war. You know, it's very simple in history. Um, be financially sound, earn more than you spend, um, and be strong in these ways, and pretty much everything will take care of itself. That's just kind of a, um, I mean, when you guys are watching March Madness and having fun, I'm an hour and 40 minutes into a podcast with Lex Friedman, who's somewhat of a, um, an intellect interviewing Ray Dalio, who I've always found to be interesting and intriguing. And, um, and I buy into that. I mean, I buy into the macro. I buy into nothing is forever. I mean, I think we've had a hell of a run. I, I think on the scale of relative good, relative bad, America's been unbelievably good for the world. But, but I think for those out there who believe that patriotism allows us to be exempt from the realities of world, the world, I just don't buy into that. I think we've been irresponsible. I think we've been negligent. I think we've squandered our advantages in certain very distinguished places around the world. And I think China sees 
an opportunity now to eventually replace America as the preeminent superpower on the world. As I said, China doesn't have a desire to share the stage. I mean, they see our financial situation. They see our educational realities. They see some of the um, some of the decisions we made, reckless. And I'm talking about, you know, uh, diversity and equity and inclusion and so, some of the um, so, some of the issues related to climate change. I mean, they, they, it's just a better run nation. I mean, I understand it's communist meets capitalism. And how do you figure that out? I don't know. Gorbachev couldn't do it when he went to China to try and explore and understand um, we are a capitalist nation until we aren't. And we decided last week that we had enough capitalism. We bailed out banks with money we didn't have. Um, we've exhibited a degree of irresponsibility and recklessness that I think will haunt my kids and grandkids. And I do believe, I mean, I don't think I'll live long enough to see it, but I think there's a Chinese century coming that will replace the American century. And as Xi was called on Mike saying to Putin the other day when they had their meeting, but not on stage, kind of officially to the side, he said, we have opportunities in front of us that we haven't seen for a hundred years. And we're providing those opportunities. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937 takes Mondays to make Fridays. I got Rev all cheered up today. I got Rev in a good mood this morning. Man, Rev's one of these patriotic country music listening, um, Eagles playing, uh, 4th of July celebrating, hot dog cooking, everything's going to be okay. MAGA movement member, Republicans, right, Ralph? Yeah, that's pretty accurate. <laughs> Man, just, you're bumming me out today. Well, so, so, so your take on that, we got our delegation here, and I'll get their take in a couple of seconds, but your take on that is what? Well, you know, you've been saying these things for years about maybe America is in decline, and now I'm starting to believe it. But, but there's no doubt America's in decline. I mean, can we write the course? I mean, I think that's the question we ask ourselves is and, can and we I'm, write the course? And I'm wondering. But I mean, g- give me, and it's like Dalio said, give me a metric on the right trajectory. <clears throat> give me something about our country. Education, uh, we're underperforming, underachieving. Our, our proficiency scores are worse today than they were 10 years ago. Look at our debt. I mean, you know, look, look, I mean, just give me an example. Right, yeah. I mean, look, look at our influence around the world. Um, look at the corruption in politics. Uh, look, look at the, I don't know, the discombobulation within our political ranks. What, what did Dalio say? The biggest war is within. I mean, America's war is, is within itself. Um, Jay and I were talking before Philip and Mike got here. All three of our delegation members are here. Representative Jordan, Representative Lowe, Senator Rickenbaugh. But, I mean, Jay, Jay, we were talking a lot about, I mean, I'll let you jump in here. I mean, this is less about state politics, more about political philosophy and, and the nation in general. But, but I mean, we have strayed. Uh, there's no question about it. The founders were very complicated in religious matters. I mean, they were. They were all over the place. They were deist. They were agnostic. I mean, they, you know, they, there were some Christians in there. But um, but our nation was founded, wh- whether our founders were or not, there were biblical worldviews and Judeo-Christian values that permeated our nation at its core. And it's easy to argue we've abandoned a, a lot of those values and views and, and because of that have kind of drifted from uh, the original course. You know, I think you made the statement when I was riding in this morning that something along the lines of, you know, we can take the position that God chose us and blessed us, and it will always do that. Uh, I believe God did choose us and bless us tremendously. And you can go back, as you said, and look back. And I was in Washington with my kids a number of years ago, and it, it was um, it was fun to point out to them all the biblical references on buildings 
in Washington, D.C., in our capital. It's on our money, man. Yeah, it, it's clearly established that we're a, we're founded on these Judeo principle um, values. Um, but, but back to your point, I believe God did choose us and bless us. But part of the reason he did is because we humbled ourselves and presented ourselves as God-loving, fearing people that were willing to be used by him. And, you know, there's there's a correlation there. Now, the, the correlation does extend that if you violate God's principles and stray from his values and, and reject him, then how can you expect to, to continue to to look to the to, for him to bless us? And I think that's where we're we're staring down that issue today. And, and Philip, I mean, you can't expect there to be no consequences when we allowed an eight year old kid to enter a sex change operation contract with a medical provider, or we allow a boy to decide whether he's a, you know, a biological boy, uh, his parents say, well, I mean, I'm gonna let him decide when he chooses to decide whether he's a male or female. I mean, th- these are, these are, these are matters of the heart. I mean, I, you know, it's easy to say we better get our spending under control. I mean, that, that's an obvious number. I mean, there, there's a, I can write down $1.25 trillion on a sheet of paper, but some of these cultural issues are complicated but, but you can't expect us to escape any, I, I don't say punish, judgment from these decisions we make. You know, if you look in history, uh, even 2,000 years back, probably the Roman Empire is the only one that really lasted for a while. And they lasted for a while on this brute strength, just taking over, dominating, and, and compelling people to, to go under their sword. But everything else, if you look in Europe and Portugal and Spain and the France and, and, and England, you know, they didn't make it more than 100 or 200 years, and they've rotted from within. Well, what are we doing? Well, it's kind of the same thing. It's a moral decay. And, and on top of that, just a gluttony. Uh, you, you look at GDP and the amount of debt that we had. Go back to the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and GDP was, uh, if you put the debt to D- GDP, it was 30% debt compared to GDP. And now it's 130%. We're living on credit cards to pay off credit cards and thinking we're rich. It's easy to be rich if you can print money and borrow money with absolutely no reason or, or need to pay it back. But that's where we're at. And, Mike, I mean, to, 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 to believe we could escape any sort of judgment from that is just <laughs> it, it's, it's childish. Yeah. I mean, it's immature. Yeah, and these two guys are right on. And, and Phil mentioned in the gluttony and – and Jay in particular, Jay, I mean, you're exactly right. It's even the scripture says it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. He gives us time. He's a gracious and merciful God, but he's also a, a wrathful God. If you continue to push him and we've walked away from so much of the grace that he's given us. I mean, what do they say? Grace is receiving what you don't deserve and mercy is not receiving what you do deserve. And we're abusing all of that. But I, I personally, and this is not an indictment of anyone in particular, even at the federal level, but, and I could indict several of them, but I do believe that term limits are a good thing because politics and the power that comes with it, Ken, allows you to begin to believe 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years into it, that you are the position. And I fundamentally believe that if you believe that you're the position, that, that you are the seat and that this, you embody that seat, you can become disconnected from the reality of regular people. I think when the founding fathers served, and you look at the average tenure of when they served, and even though shortly after, their plan was to serve and then to go back to work. 
and to realize that you'd have to live under the laws you made. Nancy Pelosi doesn't live in the same reality that we do. Harry Reid, Chuck Schumer, go on down the line. When you begin to be, to believe your own press, that you are that seat, I think you become disconnected. You have the tendency to become disconnected. Well said. Jay, I want to ask you a question. What led you into politics? I mean, I mean, go back to the beginning. In the beginning, Jay Jordan decided. Uh, but, but, but seriously, I mean, what, what, what about you at that moment in time committed you to do it? You know, it's funny. Um, I'm, I'm guess I'm blessed or fortunate, however you want to look at it. I can remember uh, sort of when and where, uh, as I remember and look back. Um, it was back in uh, 2007, eight, somewhere in there. Um, even though I didn't decide to, to do anything at that moment. Um, but when the world started to crash economically um, back in that time period, and I remember I was, you know, just trying to get my my life really going, had finished law school, moved back to Florence with my family. Um, you know, Terry had helped get me through law school. We had Wallace at that time who was a baby. And, you know, trying to get the things of life rolling as a, as a young family, and the world was sort of crumbling financially and otherwise around us. And I remember thinking, this just doesn't make any sense. This this should not be happening. There's no reason for this to happen. And but for bad decisions by the people we sent to Washington and government, that that's why these things are crumbling around us. And that got me plugged in probably for the first time and actually paying attention to. Um, and that, that sort of turned into me serving in a few different ways. I was on the election commission for a little while and then eventually decided to run for office. But that was, you know, the the reaching the conclusion that it doesn't have to be the way it the way it was at that moment philip what what led you down that road i remember going to a fundraiser in forest lake in about 2004 am i close somewhere thereabouts oh six yeah oh six oh six and um uh, you were standing on stairs kind of making your announcement and it was at a a house at forest lake i don't know why i remember that but a friend of yours is a friend of mine and he said hey come with me philip's getting ready to announce his um getting in poly i didn't know you from adam but, yeah. but what about your life and your at that time motivated you to to do it well that was at tom levine's house he put on a fundraiser for me he had a brand new beautiful house and i knew that the women would come look at the house mm -hmm. and that nobody cared anything about what i said on those steps so i remember i, I remember well I, I said well they'll come look at this house this is where i'll have it at. <laughs> that was my logic but you know there were a couple issues that brought me to columbia uh that in the preceding years of me getting in there that got me interested in the politics and and uh, i i had Marty Coates was just before me, and he didn't give a whole lot of heads up. So I didn't have a whole lot of time, and I, I was trying to decide should I get in. My wife was sick. She had like a mono-type thing, and she was just laying in the bed, and I really didn't have a lot of con consoles. So I called up my buddies who were on a ski trip. They were in Vail, and I said, hey, guys, what you think? I'm thinking about running for this. I said, tell you what, I'll call you back in the morning. Y'all talk about it. I'll call you back in the morning. I called him back in the morning. He said, "No, no, that's not a good. That's not good for you, Philip. We we just we don't think that's a good thing to do." Of course, I was just looking for someone to say, "Yes, Philip, oh, sure. you're going to be the best." You made your mind up. Yeah, that's it. I was just hoping to get agreement, but uh, <laughs> I'm a little too hard headed and and it jumped in the fire. Mike, it was a 2015 or 2016, and there was a piece of legislation uh, that had to do with the the retail dealership world, and several dealers um, called and said, "Look, you need." We'd ask you to, to pay attention to this bill, um, understand what it'll do to your business, to the communities, uh, your ability to give back, and started paying attention. But then they asked us to go speak uh, to some of the legislators in the General Assembly and to sit in a balcony. And 
we sat in the balcony. We listened to some of the, the rhetoric that is at the well. And then they had one-on-one set up with us. And again, not an indictment of the 170 people, a lot of really smart people in there. Um, but the lack of business acumen by some of them who were elected officials who were making decisions, they had never run a business. And, and not that you have to run a business, but Ken, they didn't know what a P&L statement was. They didn't understand the difference between a P&L statement and a balance sheet. And I, real, I realized they, if you haven't made payroll, if you haven't laid awake at night and said, I don't know how we can keep the doors open, I think it's harder to understand and appreciate the need for fiscal accountability, for transparency, and for the ability to say, if we don't have it, don't spend it. And if you do have it, don't spend all of it. Learn to save because it won't always be there. And that's, you know, we've talked before. You know the, the, the late nights where you're like, I got to figure out how to make all this work because I got to pay people in the morning and I got to pay vendors and I got to pay my property tax. And that need for business acumen, I think, um, is helpful to balance some of the other real smart people in there, in particular, a lot of good attorneys in there and some of the best attorneys and the best legal minds who help make law um, can be, I think, balanced well with people who can say, well, have you laid awake at night and said, how am I going to pay my people and their families? Jay, I want to go back to you because this is interesting to me. One of, the, one of the biggest issues in government, as far as I'm concerned, is the relationship it has with the private sector, business in particular. Um, we've done a good job attracting industry to South Carolina because we're tax-friendly, so to speak. Uh, we have a lot of um, advantages that others, right to work, um, low state income. I mean, anyway, there's a lot of advantages. But, but from your personal perspective, how important is, to Mike's point, the understanding or the relationship between government and business and, and how do you sort through policy when you consider the implications or impact it has on business? I think one of the greatest things about the way we govern in South Carolina, in the United States for that matter, is that we, we send all walks of life and we put them all in the same room and say, all right, we need to get everyone's point of view and perspective. And, you know, this does not, you know, as we govern, I think about Columbia so many times now, it, it doesn't come with instructions. You don't get there, and, and other than here's where you sit, uh, they don't tell you much else. So you have to find the bathroom for yourself, and every every other relationship and, and piece of knowledge you come comes from experience there. Um, but it's always been interesting to me. I mean, as you sit there and you work with, with folks in the process, it truly is from all walks of life, preachers, farmers, lawyers, business people, and they all bring that perspective with them to Columbia. Uh, and, and as we tackle these issues, you know, it, it is tremendously beneficial and helpful. We don't have, you know, when we make laws in Columbia, it's not a bunch of bureaucrats that make those decisions that when we, when we vote as 124 across the way in the Senate, it's those people coming together and applying, you know, our real world experience. We're not, um, in a situation like some States where we're not paying uh, members of the general assembly, hundred thousand dollars plus a year to be members of the general assembly. These are citizen legislators. These are part-time folks for the most part that, you know, we, we work on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and we go home and, and run a business or a law firm, which is, which is a business, by the way, or, or to the farm <laughs> or to the church, uh, you know, all those different things and coming together and bringing those different perspectives is how we, how the sausage is made in South Carolina. Philip. I have to sit between these two guys, keep them apart, you know. <laughs> hey, Mike brought my, me coffee. We love each other. I love my attorney friends. <laughs> sure, of course. <laughs> so, you know, what people don't realize, too, is, is you know, we have these big agencies, and we write laws, but we don't write the regulation. Those folks write the regulation, and they come in with some 30,000-page 
book that says, here's our regulations with a couple changes here, there, and yonder, and y'all figure it out. And yeah, you figure it out. You figure it when you go out there and start clearing a, a one acre piece of land to put a building on, you start figuring out a whole lot of things that you had no idea. But they don't call the administrative agent. They call their house of representative member. That's right. Or their councilman. And, sure. and, and you've got layers of government and the, the local, the state and the federal and the regulations and all, you know, you may step on the toes of one next thing you know, it's become a federal issue and all, and, and now your whole world's changed because now you got legal fees. Now, excuse me, Mr. Lawyer, but you have legal fees to defend yourself and to, and to advance whatever it is you're you trying to build. Your on that bill problem. Last time I represented you, <laughs> <laughs> but but Mike, I mean, most of us. I mean, I've always felt that one of the most important things I did as an elected official was that the 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 legislation I was a part of and the effect or influence it had on, on business, the private sector. Yeah, and I believe that that's one of the, the most important tenets of why we go there. Um, when you create jobs and good-paying jobs, you create opportunities for not just the current generation, but for additional generations to prosper. Uh, I don't believe as a nation or as a state we were ever intended to rely on the government to take care of us. That's just one reason why we were a great nation. We knew we needed to work to eat, biblically, if you don't work, you don't eat. And I think that's such an important aspect of us in this room. We create jobs and create opportunities for people to do for themselves. I think that that's maybe one of the challenges and I realize I'm learning. So I've got these days I have a lot of more experience in the general assembly and I respect that. I'm realizing that there is need for deliberation and for time, but it's frustrating at times. And compromise. And compromise. And, and you presided over the Senate. I have a lot of respect for that because when you can go five, six, seven hours in a day and feel like you haven't accomplished anything um, in business, Ken, did you ever go a day when you're like, <laughs> have I started the day? Well, I mean, I'll the tell you this. Had they not run me off, I'd have probably quit. Well, it's, it's a real challenge, isn't it? Right. Because you want to say to yourself, let's decide on our objectives. Let's decide to be efficient and productive. And every Democrat, every Republican, let's set aside the party labels and say, what are the three things we want to accomplish this day or this week or this session? Is it lower taxes? Is it create more jobs? Is it more fiscal conservatism? Like what it, let's decide on the things that are important and let's go do it and let's get it done as quickly as possible for the people. And it doesn't seem to be that sense of urgency, but I realize that there's need for deliberation and sure. I'm learning and balancing that. Well, the Senate does plenty of deliberating. I can assure you that. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937 is our number. I want to get to an issue that happened. We discussed it a little bit last week. Um, news broke yesterday or the day before that Richard Ekstrom, um, Comptroller General, State of South Carolina, is resigning effectively end of April. Am I right? Yep. Um, I guess he's owning the $3.5 billion blunder. Jay, I'll start with you. Um, legally, legislatively, what happens when Ekstrom's no longer the Comptroller General? That's a really good question. I'm full of good <laughs> questions, Mr. Jordan. We were just discussing that briefly amongst ourselves uh, off the air. Um, I would argue that you to point you back to history would be the best indicator of how to do it and is how we've done it before. And while I don't re recall a time we dealt with the this particular office, we did deal with the state treasurer, uh, Thomas Ravenel, state treasurer, a number of years ago, had to resign under federal indictment. And, and that triggered uh, the General Assembly appointing um, – and so I would say that's the, the model we would look back at to determine uh, what the path forward is. Now, that's not a, uh, a foolproof mechanism. You know, this is uh, going to be a, 
I imagine there are going to be a lot of folks who have their hand up to say they're qualified and prepared to do that job. And then it's going to be up to, it looks like up to 170 uh, folks in the General Assembly to determine who is best qualified and prepared to do that job. Philip, who will be the loudest voices in making that decision? I mean, you know how that place works as good as anybody in this room. I mean, who, who do you expect to be at the front of the line in deciding who the next Comptroller General is going to be? Well, obviously, the you know the leader of the Senate, the leader of the House is is going to be, and you know whether they appoint a committee or whether word just starts getting out, it could easily be, you know, one of us legislators, House or senators that have a good background. This guy beside me has got an accounting background. Well, we could, we could talk about putting Mike up there, but that would slow Mike down to get. Why to be do you the hate Senate. me, Philip? <laughs> Why are you mad at me? Don't put me up for that. Oh, I think. I, I told you I can count, but you know that that's a job's a little more than counting, uh, and there's no governor mansion. But there is no criteria, it. I don't think. I mean, there there is no. I mean, am I right, Jay? I mean, well, y'all are looking at me, and I can understand. You would think a lawyer might be prepared to do that job. Well, no, I would expect no. <laughs> here's why joke. I'm looking at you because I think you would have a better legal opinion than I on what the requirements for that job would be. I mean, you don't have to be a CPA. I mean, you could find the guy at the end of of um, Oak Street. And say, hey man, I think I can get you the votes. You want to be the um the con- I mean, is that a is that an accurate understanding? No, I think that's a fair understanding. I think if you look back over those different statewide um to my statewide positions, you know, for instance, one of the ones that we have modified in the recent past is the superintendent of education. Uh, I remember we uh, you talked about it, and it was it was a it was news during the time of that election. Um, Ellen had to go get a a master's, uh, a master's degree uh, because she had to have that master's degree before she could be sworn in as superintendent of education. That was a sort of, more, of a more modern requirement that was added by the General Assembly in the last few years. I, to my knowledge, I don't think we've tackled the um, this particular position to determine modernizing the qualifications. Mike, what sort of person are you looking for? Yeah, I think it, it needs to be different than it's currently viewed. It's a statewide elected position, and elected positions are often based upon who raises money, popularity, who supports you. Uh, that's the way elections work, as we all know. This is a job, Ken. You are the state's top accountant. It's less about making policy and making decisions and judgment and more about understanding what a trial balance is and journal entries and that your balance sheet needs to balance. I'm looking for an individual, not just a CPA or at least a very, very tenured accountant. I'm looking for someone, and I think we as a General Assembly need to enforce rigor to say this person needs to be that type of personality that doesn't sleep at night if the trial balance doesn't balance. The kind of person, not like Richard Ekstrom, who will go 10 years and watch a million-dollar mistake grow to a $3.5 billion mistake, a miscalculation, and be like, ah, maybe we'll get it next year. You don't sleep if you're an accountant type of personality um, and again, I was an accounting major. So it, the last two years of college, I was in there with them. They're frustrating. I frustrate my wife sometimes. But when you will pour over your check register to figure out why you're off four cents, that's the kind of person we need if the people of South Carolina are going to depend on them to be the top accountant and top fiscal watchdog. Philip, I want to go to you for a second. You'd probably be the best to ask this. I want to get everybody's opinion on this. We're talking about money, talking about finance. Um I'm sure the state of South Carolina has more than $250,000 in a bank account somewhere. I mean, I'm, I'm sure of that. I don't know how much of that you can disclose or how we manage the affairs of state financing. But as the situation with the banks continue to evolve, 
and the government is being clear one day and unclear the other as to what deposits are guaranteed. Um, I mean, how do how does the General Assembly sort through? I mean, you guys are responsible for a lot of things in South Carolina. How do we make sure taxpayer dollars are safe in the banks of which we um, have relationships with? I mean, has there been any talk in the General Assembly this week about the situation regarding the banks, knowing the state of South Carolina has more than $250,000 and probably a multiple, uh, a, a, a number of banks? Yeah, I guess they've got it uh, all over, you know, the investments sure. and making small uh, interest payments to it. And you know, I'm sure they've got the stocks and bonds and stuff that they're invested in. But it's a good question. I don't know. That, I'm sure that somebody up there is thinking about but money's what would moving happen. around, right? I mean, there, there's always moving money around. I mean, you guys appropriate money, but you don't bank the business. I mean, that, that's the point I'm trying to make. I wanted to be clear. You guys are appropriators. You vote on whether or not the state raises money via tax increase or spends money via a budget or an, another sort of appropriation. But 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 I just it, 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 it's interesting to me that we're concerned about the banks. And the state of South Carolina, I would imagine, Jay, has a lot of money and a lot of banks somewhere around the state and maybe around around the nation. No, this was something when it first started, I guess, about two weeks ago. You know, we looked at this and said, these things have a tendency to not stop at one bank. They're, they're contagious, as they say, and that's what we're seeing. Um, and the federal government, as true to form, is, is finding the worst way to deal with it and employing that strategy to try and stop the problem. And it's not working. Um, so as it applies to here in South Carolina, we're not immune to it, I wouldn't think. Um, we have to continue to apply as fiscal responsible, um, you know, decisions to our, our path forward. I will go back to the comptroller for just a second because sure, you, you, sure. you made a good point. This would be an office that you could look at as Mike was sort of laying the case for that. It would be a good administrative office for the governor to say, you know, we're going to appoint as part of a cabinet, someone to do this job. Um, I, I've argued that that makes a lot of sense, whether that's the attorney general or superintendent of education. But I will say the people of South Carolina spoke pretty clearly when it was on the ballot not that long ago as to the superintendent of education that they didn't want to go that route, that they wanted to elect these offices, in particular the superintendent of education. So it's an interesting balance as to what the people of South Carolina want to see happen. I'm on the record. I think the governor appoints this, uh, I don't know all of these uh, offices, but I think we're better off if the governor does appoint some of these administrative offices, executive level administrative offices, and allows the governor. Philip, both of you guys want to jump in and have at it. But the the Budget and Control Board, the old Budget and Control Board, all What's got it together. called now? I mean, it's called something different now, isn't it? Yeah, it the is. The Office of Administration or something like that? But, but there are five of them that basically get in and make some of the upper-level decisions, financial decisions, and you can't give the governor a second vote out of five. So you still got to figure out how that's going to get Correct. managed if you if you rolled that under him. And, and yes, we've got to have more than 250000 Our Our annual budget is like $33 billion with state, local money and all that and federal money that goes in. So, yeah, we've got to have more than that sitting around. With, and that's probably how some of this accounting error, you know, is made. It it never was really a balancing of what was in the bank. Uh, it was it was a balancing. It was a non-balance of books, but to, never. To, Mike, to Philip's point, is it fair for the General Assembly to ask for somebody to come in and explain exactly how the state banks? I mean, when taxpayer dollars are collected, where do they go? How long do they stay? Who decides what bank they are deposited in or not? I mean, you guys would be the only ones that I can think of that could bring in someone to explain to we the people 
how that sort of um because it could be unbelievably confusing i would imagine yeah I, I think as representatives of the people it would be very warranted especially in this day and age for us to ask at, at, at least a higher level you don't need to get into the, the, the granularity sure. but what are we doing in terms of our, our cash and our, and our dollars there's a difference between an investment and a deposit right an investment inherently has risk you invest because you want a rate of return but our banking system deposit system is based upon trust the first time a citizen goes into the bank and says i'd like my ten thousand dollars now to go buy fill in the blank and they say oh i'm sorry we don't have that today but maybe check back tomorrow our banking system is ruined which is different than if you've invested ten thousand hoping for that 12 percent return or eight yeah. percent and you don't get it but to get to jay's point which i think is a great point i would hope the citizens of south carolina um, would look at the the cabinet positions and the the positions like treasurer comptroller general superintendent of education and maybe draw the line between which positions are policy driven superintendent of education you're not teaching a class you're deciding what we're going to do from an education perspective so citizens want input in there but your comptroller general which is an accountant there's very very little policy making it's simply a function of does your left side balance your right does your debit balance your, against your credit and I think personally, citizens would be better off having the governor say, I want a CPA who's trained in this, who has this many years of public accounting to know that the citizens balance sheet, their financial statements are going to be strong so that the credit bank, the credit raters and the debt, the bond raters give us a good rating and continue to. But, but Jay, back to your point, if somebody's a really good politician and good at winning elections, but know nothing about accounting, I mean, under the current format, they're more likely to be in charge of our state's financing than, to Mike's point, a very diligent and educated accountant. Um, much more likely. Um, and I, I'm not picking on anyone, but I'll use the example I talked about a minute ago in, in determining how we go forward now was the treasurer. You know, we elected Thomas Ravenel, who had zero experience. In, but he's a pretty good politician. But he was an excellent <laughs> politician. He had run for the United States Senate, come up a little short, had name ID. Uh, and next thing you know, he's running statewide to be our next treasurer. Um, so... You know, it's a it's a perfect example of was that individual really qualified to run the the office uh, of, of that of that position? Before we take this break, could I get the endorsement of you three to be Comptroller General of South Carolina? <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty good at winning elections. I just ain't too damn good at holding on to the ones I win. We'll take a break. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. 843-661-0937. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Jim in Florence. Good morning. You're on the air with the delegation. Hey, good morning, guys. Um, so to kind of talk out of both sides of my mouth, um, I, w I would agree with you all about the appointment, um, but obviously the voters made a different decision on that the education role. Um, but is there a way, and it probably would have to, I guess, go back in front of the voters again, but are these things that we could potentially term limit um, to – maybe uh, preempt some of these issues of problems going much further. I think the governor is the only statewide office, constitutional office that uh, is term limited. Um, now on the flip side, I guess we could argue, I think uh, Alan in your podcast, Ken said that he's a much better attorney general now than he was when he got started, what, about 10 years ago. So I'm sure you could make the argument that we shouldn't term limit them, but is could that be on the table? Thank you, guys. Thank you. I appreciate that. I mean, I, I'm for term limits 
I'm not sure what the number needs to be. You know, I'm not one of these guys that says you can only stay in the Senate six years. You can stay, only stay in the House eight years. I think it takes you that long to know where the drink machine is. And I think you gain a certain local knowledge and you, you become somewhat effective. But I do believe that Mitch McConnell needs to go home. I do believe that some of the folks that have been there 30, you know, 35, 40 years need to go home. Jay, I'll let you jump in. Uh, to to the question itself, uh, yes, I, my uh, interpretation would be that would need to go by referendum. It would have to be essentially past the House and the Senate to uh, to go on the referendum. But then because it's a change in the Constitution, I believe those offices are established by the Constitution as constitutional officers that that would essentially have to go before the people by way of a referendum, much like it did when we put the uh, the education superintendent. As to the concept of term limits, absolutely. I believe in term limits. I, I think you have to look at term limits. Um, depending, It depends on the degree of them as to what we're talking about. Washington is one of those places. I think that's the only potential solution for the, the issues you see in Washington is significant term limits. Um, we see time and time again those folks – they're getting paid over, I think, over two hundred thousand dollars a year now. Um, Cadillac uh, healthcare and retirement package, and it, and I get it. It's a situation where they don't want to give up the livelihood as much as anything else when they're elected to those positions, and so they hold on and they hold on and they hold on. In addition to the power, the 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 uh, immense power that comes from being a, a congressman or a senator, um, it it becomes necessary uh, in other offices as well. But I think that's the probably where it's needed the absolute most. And, Philip, in all honesty, you and I have talked a lot about this. I mean, Washington is broken. Columbia is not. I mean, you you guys disagree and you agree and you argue and you debate and you deliberate, but 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 Columbia is not a broken system of government. Um, I think when something is, is as broken as Jay says, you got to do something pretty dramatic, and term limits would be a part of that. Uh, you know, Washington needs a balanced budget amendment, and a lot of stuff would start to straighten out just from that alone even if you had to take 10 years to get to it uh that's what washington needs and and i think the second thing you can look at a term limit did did tom brady have a term limit but but he exceeded you know any expectation of a of a mortal in the nfl i think an age limit kind of like we're doing the judges might be better having these people up here that that are walking in circles and don't know where the bathroom is. They've forgotten where the bathroom is. That's of more concern to me than whether or not you got reelected five terms. You know, it, I think it, it you may be great at what you're doing. That's not the guy I want to take out of government. You, but if you get to the point you're no longer great in your mind, but you're, you know, you're looking at Strom Thurmond. He was there too long, even though he was ours. Sure, he was there too long, but that shut it off at, at 75 or something and say, that's it, come home. Mike? Yeah, I mean, Philip brings up a good point. There's no perfect system. Uh, I've, I've talked to some legislators from some other states who do have term limits, Oklahoma being one of them, and their point was, yes, we have term limits, but the staffers end up with the real power because the staffers are there 20 and 30 years, and they know the where the, run by bureaucrats. That's right. They know yep. where the bodies are buried, and they manage the process. So, He's like, that's the other side of the coin. Um, you know, and I did my contract with the PD and I told people in writing, I'll, I'll sponsor term limit. And I did it my first month. And folks are like, well, what happens if we have term limits? Are, are you prepared for the staffers to have power? And that's a that's a legitimate concern that we need to discuss and, and be mindful that there's no perfect process. But I do believe if you look, especially at the federal level, as I said earlier in the show, 
people begin to, to believe their own press that they are the seat and they can do whatever it takes to keep the seat. And I think it's unhealthy and it's uh, it's not right for the American people. Um, do we have time for a question? Let's, uh, let's uh, go there as fast uh, as we yeah, can. Real quick call here from Sam and Cross Hill. You're on with the delegation. Okay. Uh, thanks. I'll be real quick. Uh, two things. Senator Rickenbach, you're, a, you're an accountant and, and very I enjoy hearing all of you guys in the morning. I want you to explain, I'm an accountant also, and I want you to explain exactly what the problem was with the uh, Ekstrom situation. I still do not understand how something happened that didn't wind up messing something else up and balancing. And Ken, I want you to follow up in the next segment on earlier. When do you, what do you think was the catalyst that really seemed to propel the downfall of our country? Wow. That's a very interesting question. Thank you, Sam. Mike, I'll let you have at it. Yeah, I know we don't have a lot of time. Um, thanks for the, for the call. In, in its simplest form, it was a misadjust, a misalignment of dollars. Essentially, you counted the same dollars twice. So if you had a checking account and you had a savings account and you, you transferred $100 from your checking account into your savings account, but then you didn't credit the checking account correctly or debit the savings account correctly, you'll show $100 in both accounts in your register, but you don't have $100 in both accounts. You still only have $100. You don't now magically have 200. That's what happened. The Comptroller General allowed that to be in the same dollars in the same place, do different places. And and got elected without telling the public that yep. was indeed the case. Thanks to the three of you. We got to take a break. Back in a few. Okay, Rev, is that the fourth greatest rock and roll song ever or the fifth greatest rock and roll <laughs> song ever? Well, I'd have to know one, two, three, and four to decide if it's the fifth. I'm going to say it's probably the fourth. Now, let me give you the rankings. You okay. ready? VH1 uh, did right. probably as extensive a rating of these music so of these songs as anybody. Satisfaction by the Stones okay. was number one. Mm -hmm. uh, I can go along with that. Sure. Here's where I, I get a little bit disagreeable. Respect by Aretha Franklin was number two. Is that really rock, rock and, roll? and roll? I mean, yeah, I mean, it, but you got to have diversity. You know okay. what I mean? You got to make sure all, um, eth you know, races and religions sure. and it's a great song. You got to make sure everybody's absolutely iconic. But I don't know if it's rock and roll. I don't. Yeah, uh, I don't know. Um, three, Stairway to Heaven. Yep. Hard to argue that. Yeah. Four, Born to Run. Yeah. Five. Uh, Hotel California. On that list, I definitely put Hotel California. But I mean, you would agree that, to run. that's a pretty good list. Satisfaction. List. Yeah. Respect, Stairway to Heaven, Born to Run, and Hotel California. I mean, that's a pretty damn impressive list of five songs. Where's Freebird? Mm -hmm. well, that'd be in the top. Cato's got that one. I mean, Cato <laughs> couldn't get it over the top into the uh, right. end of the top five. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. But before we do anything, we've got kind of an interesting guess here um, this morning. When I got here, there was a um, a sheet of paper laying on my workstation about a, a person named pa uh, Preston Duffy. Um, said he was a longtime listener. Now he's rocking his Clemson orange this morning, I and I got to believe that's very intentional. <laughs> there is no random um, act of kindness there. That's a um, a dude who knew exactly what he was doing when he woke up this morning and said, "Hey, I'm going to be on a radio show. I've heard these guys talk about Gamecocks. I'm wearing my loud and proud um, Clemson <laughs> orange." Preston, good morning. How are you? I'm wonderful. So, Glad so, to be so here. before we go to the task at hand, you have listened to our show. For a long time. For a long time. My daddy made sure to, he said, uh, he said, make sure you tell him now on the way to school every morning. We listen to that show and we did. I'm talking about all the way through high school every morning. Well, you've, you've been warped for life. I mean, you're, 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 I, learned, <laughs> I learned quite a bit. <laughs> Be careful how you listen to us is all I'll, is right. all I'll say. Okay. You, you've got an interesting story and I don't know how much of this you want to share or not. 
you had a tragedy in your life, in your personal life, that led to kind of the advancement of a musical career. Uh, elaborate if you don't mind. Yes, sir. So the American Idol platform has given me a lot of room to talk about my story. My sister and I lost our mom to suicide in August of 2020. And so I've just used it. You know, we made it known from the start what happened, and we wanted to use it for something positive. And I think we have. Um, the decision to make it known three years ago has made it, you know, made us able to use it now on the show and everything. Um, so at the time, we were obviously living with our mom, and I was in college, and I was working a part-time job. I Doing make, your thing. Doing my thing, being 19, you know. And so it, there came a time where it was like, all right, we're, we're on our own now. we got to make something happen. So that's when I just decided, I said, well, I'm good at one thing, at least kind of good at it. I can play a little bit and sing a little bit. Let's see if I can make some money at it. So then I've, I, you know, and I decided to play for a few weeks, and I've played three times a week every week for the last three years ever since. And so that's how that went. So you chose to be a professional musician slash singer because your mom passed away and somebody had to make money and pay bills. Somebody had, yes, sir. That, Yes, sir. Oh, uh, and then you auditioned for American Idol. I did. Now, I, now, some of these things you can't disclose, right? Well, I'll be careful. Okay. Best I can. Okay. Okay. But, but and I had never, I had never really thought about doing a show. I thought, hey, it's probably cool to do one of those. But I never thought that was my route um, until you know, I've, you know, people over the years, you need to do American Idol or The Voice or whatever. The Voice actually reached out to me, um, right after our mom died, and wanted me to skip one round of the producer auditions. And then when I sent in the videos, they cut me right after. So that was. That was weird, but, you know, I wasn't ready at the time, but I had friends send me the American Idol stuff. You know, this is over Zoom now. This is over Zoom. And I was like, well, I guess it can't hurt. I didn't think anything of it. And then they were like, yep, we're going to send you to New Orleans. You're going to audition for the celebrity judges. So I thought that was cool, but that's just kind of how that went. Uh, When did you start down the road of wanting to be a singer and and play an instrument? I've always wanted to play and sing. I've I've just sang my whole life as a kid. Um, I know my parents got sick of hearing it growing up. And then my daddy bought me a guitar for Christmas when I was 12. And I just started playing it and never put it down. Just, you know, typical story. But but then, you know, through high school, I would play at the FCA. And I was I was blessed enough to get to go speak to the FCA Thursday morning. So that was, that was very cool. But I would play at FCA, play at church. And then that kind of opened me up to playing in front of people. And then I had, you know, some people in my life who led me down the rabbit hole of you know you can make money at this uh, but okay making money right. and hitting it big are two different things right absolutely i mean the right. biggest <laughs> the biggest star right. ever at american idol is probably carrie underwood and she made it big i mean they're correct i'm sure as if big she as cho- you can make well it, i mean she's... if she chooses to she lives in a big house in a long driveway sure if she doesn't that's because she chooses not absolutely. to live that way so so how do you go from playing for the fun of it playing for money to trying to make it big i mean because you've got a chance now at american idol for a larger audience than ever before to hear your music. Is it something you think about? Is it something you just trust God with? I mean, you talked about your faith a second ago. I mean, walk me through in the back of your mind. There's got to be this thought. And I could, I mean, this thing could work out and I could make it big. Absolutely. I, I've always wanted it to. Sure. Like you said earlier, everybody does. I mean, right? I wanted to be quarterback of the Green Bay Packers. Sure. You know, what, you know sure. Might be a little far for that. But, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. but everybody has dreams. And I think it's just, I think one big thing that people don't talk about a lot is timing. I think it's a lot of timing. Um, yeah, absolutely. I've, I've actually had people kind of scoff at me and brush me off when I say, they're like, you need to do this. You need to do this by this time. You need to do this by this time. And I say, man, God's going to do it, you know. I, 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 I'm I glad you say that because that's absolutely been my approach for the most part is the Lord wants me there, he'll put me there, and I can honestly say every opportunity I've gotten, even being here, like 
y'all are celebrities to me. I've listened to the show well, for a long time. <laughs> you're going to be a much bigger celebrity than we are, and we're pulling for you. My sister um, was a, um, I mean, she was Miss Wheelchair, South Carolina. She was a singer. She was a Christian witness, went to school with Josh Turner. And I can remember my sister telling me one day, hey, there's this kid at my school that's going to make it big. And I told my sister, eh, of course there is. You're you like, know, there's oh, always yeah, a kid. Are. Yeah, there's always a kid at the school that's going to dream about about making it big. Um, oh, yeah. What kind of music do you play? I do country music. That's that's my that's my claim. Um, I've really taken an approach, and especially to answer your question as far as what's the, the step to making it bigger instead of just playing, I think is recording. Obviously, you have to have material that was something i struggled with that's why this new song something right about is out because i just wanted to have something out are you a songwriter i am a songwriter i wrote that this is the first song i ever wrote i auditioned with it on the show and um i spend as much time as i can writing songs but so i think my main approach has been in recording is turning down stuff that i don't think is country music mm, so you're a I, purist I, i'm a realist i'm doing it best i can but I'm, I'm really trying to put out stuff that sounds like me and my band sitting in a room playing music instead of snap tracks and computer and there's i listen to that stuff sure. there's nothing wrong with it i just want to be that guy that you know okay well i'm, I'm gonna tell you if you listen true. to uh, rev is the snapchat hero right i mean rev is the um he's the corporate guy <laughs> i don't know he, about that <laughs> you know I, i'm the purist I, i'm the singer so so i've always wanted to ask a songwriter this how do you start i mean what what, what in your mind are you riding down the road one day you, you said you heard earlier you know i'm a springsteen guy Springsteen's probably one of the greater singer-songwriters of our of our time, I would and agree. probably has placed more of an emphasis on songwriting I would than agree. he has singing. Yeah. And and I've heard Bruce talk about where the idea comes from. So so the song something to write about. You wrote that song, yes, sir. First right, song how I does ever that wrote. start? How how in the world that does something come in your head and end up lyrics and music and chords and all these other things? That so over. <laughs> the the broad answer is i've heard a lot of songwriters talk about this and the answer is usually it could be a lyric it could be a title it could be a melody you might sit there and play a string, string together a few licks or chords on your guitar and go i like that let's write around let's write around it for this particular song i was getting towels out of the dryer folding clothes and i was like i've been trying for so long to write my first song and i just never have and then i was like there you go there's the opening line and i walked into my living room sat down and wrote the song so it just wow that's a true story. I was, I was, I had just gotten home from school that day. And I you was felt in it. I mean, there was something different about the way you felt about what you were doing while you're writing the song. Cause sure. I, I mean, yeah. somebody like me doesn't know. I mean, I wouldn't know a G chord from an F chord. I mean, I would have no idea. I yell and scream in the shower, you know, with I'm the sure queen you, and the I'm rolling sure you put on a show. No, I, no it, it's, it, and the more I drink, the better I am. That's exactly I mean, right. For sure. <laughs> yes, sir. But, but no, I'm going to go back to it. Cause I, I'm so interested in this. So, so while you're doing it, are you aware that you're doing something that could be pretty cool? It depends on how I think the telltale sign of a good song for me, I can't speak for other songwriters, but like this song in particular, you know, you kind of just say it wrote itself, so to speak. So some of them you have to, it's like pushing a rope uphill. Some songs it's like, well, what can go there? I cannot think of what line goes right there. Some of them, it's just like, there ain't no choice. There ain't no other choice, but this line for this next line for this verse for this. And that, that was just one of those songs. I really think, I'm not that smart. I think the Lord just gives them to no, me. There's something. no question I about am it. Not that smart. He's giving you a talent, a gift, and you're sure. going to try your best to take advantage of it. Okay, this this song is number twelve among all genres. It was okay. Was on, on iTunes. iTunes. It was number six on all the country charts. Yes, sir. Uh, that's pretty on cool. iTunes. Right. Very cool. Can, Very can cool. we get you to do something? 
Sure. You got your yeah, guitar? I got it right here. No, as we say in Pamplica, you, you got your guitar? The guitar. Okay, That's you right. got your guitar? I get made fun of for that, can, can, too. can you play? <laughs> well, you're from Hartsville. I'm from Pamplica. We can relate. That's right. One another. <laughs> we we, we, uh, we speak the same lingo. Can you play um, something to write about? Or sure. some of something? I'll play, I'll play a verse in a chorus. I think that'd be cool. Please I'll do. And the song is out, like like Mr. Ken said. It's out, and it did pretty well. On Ain't no Mr. over here now. Oh, that's Mr. Ken right there. <laughs> now, how do I need to put this? Wherever you say. Wherever yeah. I say. Yeah, you're, you're the man. I just want that to pick right. up. Let's see. I'm, I'm ticked about the shirt, but I, I'm sure the song will be good. And I, that is exactly how it went. I went in my closet, and I'm like, oh, yeah, they're Carolina It's as fans. orange as orange could possibly it's, be, and the tiger paw is as big as the studio. It's fluorescent. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll do the first uh, verse and chorus of it. I've been trying for so long To write my first song I don't know what to say I've been racking my brain I said a prayer to the good Lord Help me strain together a few chords Something that'll build my sound Give me something to write about And then he told me, son, all you Think of all that I've done for you And how everything you've been through Has made you into the man you are now And it dawned on me that he was right God, I wish I could see things through your eyes When I'm looking around Yeah, maybe on the hard times There's something right about That's great, man. That is really good. Thanks, Despite sir. wearing a bright orange shirt that's a killer tune that's my kind of music that's preston duffy soon to be on american idol you can't disclose uh, i don't want to ask you this you can't disclose how that went my audition has aired okay so that part's we're waiting on the uh hollywood week episodes to start airing which should be the next week or two so 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 next for you with american idol is what next for me is for to, them to notify you of x y or z for us to just watch what's already been filmed and let the show catch up with real time. Okay, well, here's what I'm going to say. Best I can I say. I don't give a damn what Hollywood thinks of him. He's one of ours. I mean, he's from here. And um, and I remember when I ran for lieutenant governor, and I spent a lot of time in Greenville. And one day it dawned on me, Red. One day I said, I better get my butt back home and make sure I got those people supporting me. Preston deserves your support. It's an interesting story. It's a human tragedy, without question, losing your mom at such an early age. Yes, but the sir. good Lord has worked. A miracle in your life, absolutely. And, um, and it seems to me that you're giving him the glory. I'm not, working. I'm trying. My, I'm trying my best. And I want to say too, while I have this opportunity, real quick, we have. I've seen on Facebook over the past few days how people are saying we need to change it to Carolina Idol because there's five or six of us, seven, eight. I don't know how many from South Carolina, three or four from North Carolina. Trip Taylor. I'm gonna shout. I'm, I'm gonna shout him out because he's from right down the street. He's from Florence. And he's been killing it there, too. So right. I need to get some of these folks some Gamecock attire, Rev. We'll talk to Rob. We'll start divided and see if we get some, some Gamecock attire. Hey, my man, I wish you nothing but the best. I appreciate and I mean that. Y'all. Sincerely. Yes, sir. Okay? Thank you very we'll much. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937. Decompression hour. I hadn't forgot um, Sam yet. I mean, we'll get back to the um, the moment America began its, um, its precipitous decline. Mm. But we're going to have a little fun here. Pepsi of Florence is our sponsor, or they're one of our sponsors, both on radio and podcast. I got my Celsius non-carbonated 
peach mango green tea uh, in hand. Got life water in hand, Rev. They keep us well stocked and uh, and well yeah. taken care of here. Uh, in the spirit of music, because once again, Preston was with us a second ago rocking that bright orange shirt. In the spirit of um, of staying in the theme of music, here's our trivia question. The right answer gets you a six-pack of Pepsi product, a couple of takes Mondays to make Friday's T-shirts. Now, there are a lot of varying statistics out there about the answer to this question. I mean, you've got this um, set of stats, that set of stats. I'm going by unit certified sales. Unit certified sales. That's okay. the most legitimate way to look at this the answer to this question, what is the best-selling rock band of all time? The best-selling rock band of all time. I didn't say the one you liked the most. I didn't say the one that Rolling Stone <laughs> magazine rated ahead of X, Y, or Z. In unit-certified sales, who is the all-time best-selling rock and roll band in history? Let's go to the phone. Hi, you're on the air. You know the answer? I'm going with the Eagles. Nope. You're close, but no cigar. Let's go to the next caller. Hi, you're on. You know the answer? The Beatles. The Beatles. That was my guess, too. 183 million unit certified sales. There's, um, I think the Eagles are number four. Yeah. You got, um, anyway, I won't go down the list because they're, bands i don't care much for <laughs> i'm kidding there's, there's some of the bands i what? care a lot for and some of the bands i don't care much for uh yeah the british rock band the beatles are the top selling rock and roll band of all time with 183 million unit certified sales who is this and where are you calling from tc florence south carolina thank you tc appreciate you listening appreciate you calling um we'll kind of continue down anything you want to add to that rev i mean you're, you're the music aficionado well that would have been my guess naturally of course because so, you're a beatles fan or because you thought they would be um okay let, let's both. do this i mean the phone's still ringing mm-hmm. you know what's surprising we got three or four listeners i know <laughs> I was, Man, it's a good day i, I it's was a good afraid day. i was afraid when the first caller got it wrong we were screwed that we was it yeah there wasn't a second <laughs> listener out there at um at 9 30 in the morning um anyway well we had we had preston on with us he probably brought some listeners with him so i'm sure he did it was a great I'm sure he did um and he antagonized us with that bright orange. Oh, I'm sure you got to appreciate that in a way. You though. know, it wouldn't have it wouldn't have upset me. No, excuse me. It would have upset me much more last year. But since we did beat the Tigers in basketball, we did beat the Tigers in football. We did win two of three in baseball, and you know we whooped them in that all important sport of women's basketball. <laughs> so I'm not quite as bothered by that orange. Uh, we got to win about six or eight more in a row before we really get um revenge mm-hmm. on uh, on the tigers so the beatles are uh, the best-selling rock and roll band let's go down this road rev you ready all right let's hear it. the eagles are in columbia thursday night right where do the eagles land in the pantheon of all-time greats now is this still based on your sales statistic no, or just no, in this greats? is just um and, and the well i mean okay it, so this is in the opinion part let, let me ask you this question okay this is a weird question okay there's no way you could ask me to tell you the five best quarterbacks ever, I would figure out a way to get Brett Favre in there because he's a gunslinger and he drank beer and he cussed. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? And oh, oh, good I stuff. mean, I mean he, he had a great career, but I don't know if he had one of the five best careers ever. But because I'm somewhat of a spin master, I'm going to figure out a way to get Favre into the top five. It doesn't, now, Favre's not an embarrassment. You can't say Trent Dilfer. 
I mean, you make a fool of yourself and your opinion is delegitimized if you say Trent Dilfer. But if you say Brett Favre, somebody go, Brett Favre ain't one of the five best. He might be one of the ten best. In the discussion, but, anyway. But, but then you go to legitimately. This, but, but this personal affinity we have, right? Right. I mean, he's a gunslinger. It's a subjective. He's from Mississippi. Um, he's not, uh, what, what am I trying to say? He's not a Boy Scout. He's never professed to be a Boy Scout. Um, and that's why I kind of like him. He's kind of a man's man. You would agree to that? Um, yeah. kind of, um, country boy, so to speak. So, so there are a lot of, um, reasons I would figure out a way to do. So what is the band that you would almost make a fool of yourself to try and convince others? They're one of the greatest bands ever. Ooh. Um, see, I mean, I, I, please don't say who sings safety dance. Yeah, men without yeah, hats. Please, please yeah, no, say. I wouldn't. Um, cause that would be Trent Dilfer. Yeah, <laughs> I mean that would be like okay. So legitimately, and since this, like you said, is a subjective part of this, I, I'd argue Boston, just because they are so monumental. Uh, I love the music. I think it was so well done, so ahead of its time. But Stands you know, the test of time. But you know, they're not one of the five best rock and roll right. bands. And, ever. I, and I think I, that fits I, that, the question that, you're asking. They were Brett Favre, right? I mean, they, they, Boston would be Brett Favre. Yeah, unbelievably accomplished, unbelievably legitimate. But they ain't the Beatles, right? You know, they're not the Stones. Okay. Let, let's go after that. You and I have agreed. Uh, this would be the uh, the periodic debate we have. Mm-hmm. There, there is no question that on Mount Rushmore, you've got the Stones and the Beatles, correct? Right. Yep. I mean, we would agree to that. And I'm leaving Elvis out and Bob Dylan and some of the others, a solo artist, and we'll have a debate about that on another decompression hour. But here's where it gets a little testy, right? Mm-hmm. Is Zeppelin the next most likely Mount Rushmore rock and roll band? Um, I would say yes. Okay. I would absolutely say yes. Is is the East Street is Bruce and the East Street band deserving? Mm, no. Okay. I mean, I, nope. I, is is Queen deserving? Ooh. Honorable mention, right there. Is Queen ahead or not of Bruce and the East Street band? Ahead. Is Queen or not ahead of you two? Ahead. Is Queen? Or not ahead of Casey in the Sunshine. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. The, the, you, know, you know how America's in decline? I'll answer Sam's question. You ready? Mm-hmm. I mean, you want to know the day I knew America was in precipitous decline? When you informed me that Casey of the Sunshine Band had more number, number one hits <laughs> than Bruce Springsteen of the East Street right, Band. Right. That's when I knew. We're screwed. I mean, we're done. Yeah. Casey of the Sunshine Band had like six number one hits in like three days. Didn't they? <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> and, 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 they were real big. And for... I still believe the first 30 seconds is the same of every one of their songs sure. ever. Um, sure. But they did hit it big. Um, so so, so we, got, we got Zeppelin. We got the Stones. We got the Beatles. Who else, Rev? I mean, does Queen deserve consideration? Yeah, a Queen, Eagles. Okay, here, 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 I, got, I got a point, and, and you're going to disagree with me, and I know you will. That's Zeppelin. We said Zeppelin. Pretty uh, Clearwater Revival. Yes, yeah, I think I, I think CCR just not one of my favorites. A, a very legitimate case as the greatest American rock and roll band ever. I'm not saying they are, but but I'm saying they're Brett Favre. Nah. I mean, you you could you could make the case, you could make an me. argument in some way, shape, but or form. Skinner got got to throw Skinner. There's in. no way, really. They didn't do it long enough. I mean, right. if they don't die in a plane crash, right. maybe. But, right. but no, but, but see, they, they, see, but they condensed a lot of success and a lot of influence into a shorter period of time that counts for something doesn't they, it they, they, they are to be congratulated for that um <laughs> oh, and i just did that that, that, that was but no but, but here's where uh, congratulations but, but, uh, skinnerd for what you did well i mean 
that was just try don't make me make fun of a tragedy i don't i don't cato may be listening and i don't want to make him mad with me um but but no the, the point that i would make with springsteen and i want to plead his case for a second okay the I point we i would make here. with springsteen is this go back to we are the world and, and watch that remember the tribute oh sure remember the, 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 the charitable endeavor yep. of the great musicians what was it 1985 ish right. name a person in that performance relevant today selling out arenas today i mean this is um we're talking about 23 plus talk about 38 years later go go back and, and think about it who's in that who's in that we are the world i mean it's got all these great yeah. artists i mean there are some still active and influential no, 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 lionel no, richie for I, example he's no, no, on no, american no, no, let me back up here no 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 um mr baker i didn't ask you who okay. was still active. who's selling arenas i well, said that- who is relevant Right. I mean, that, that's, I mean, I chose my words very carefully. Yeah, you would know that. Of course you did. You don't expect me to make a mistake. Right. I may be mispronouncing words occasionally, <laughs> but, but I don't. But you're going to make your point. I, I normally choose the right word. Um, to get the desired well, I mean, response. I, I was in the business of winning debates. Sure. Or losing debates. Sure. I'm um, impressed. So, so once again, I think this is a fair question, Mr. Baker. Mm-hmm. Um, how many it? years have you been in radio? Mr. Ard. How many years have you been in radio? 30 something. Okay. You, you know more about the business than I ever thought about. You, you, you've. There's no way we could do this without your contributions, <laughs> but but I want to get back to the to the point I'm trying to make. Okay, we are the world was one of the great artistic accomplishments, and and, and kind of a convergence of human. What, what am I trying to say? Humanism and and charitable endeavors and Absolutely. music and, yep. and a lot of things were in play there. I'm still looking for an answer, and you Name appear to somebody. not be willing to give me an answer. The artist on We Are the World. That is still relevant you in the in the world right. of music today. See, I, I'd almost Beyond Warwick to, to, to confuse you. I'd say, but isn't she isn't she selling astrology somewhere at three o'clock in the morning on to, a cable channel to send you into a state of confusion? I'd say Bob Dylan. Wow, I didn't expect that answer, but you're right. I mean, Dylan would still be relevant, correct? Yeah, I mean, as as, as did he just sell that music library yeah, for, for three hundred and some odd million dollars? Okay, yeah. Um, that's that's an interesting answer. I, that's a very intentional answer, <laughs> but it is an interesting answer um, nonetheless. Um, I mean, in, in the weirdest way imaginable, Rev, wouldn't Michael Jackson still be relevant? Obviously, I mean, I know he's deceased right. and he had a lot of issues right. before uh, he died. His music lives on. I His guess. music does. Willie Nelson. Willie Nelson. Yeah, would be somebody who was in that yeah. that is still eighty nine, smoking weed and performing. <laughs> um, I don't know if you saw this or not. This video out with Willie Willie smoking weed on stage. And the guitarist says, hey, Willie, we're in one of these states that don't allow it. And Willie said, I locked me up. You know, I'm 89. Give me a license. He's on commercials, so he's relevant. He's very relevant, very relevant. And 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 probably uh, Willie has transcended his um, his country music. Uh, In other words, he has become far more than just a country music singer. I mean, Willie Nelson is a, I mean, he's an icon, right? I mean, we throw the word legend around a lot, icon around a lot. But, But I think the most obvious answer is one you refuse to give. Correct. Well, I mean, I, I, I mean, it, yeah, yes. Who, who, who was on We Are the World in 1985? That is now on world tour and will sell out Madison Square Garden. Will sell you, out, you know, all these. You this, just, you just filter the response a little more. Somebody who's on world tour, I know it's Bruce. It is Bruce Springsteen. Yes. D- despite the dynamic pricing, correct? Apparently, okay. Still out there selling tickets. Eight four three. $4,000 a piece. So, so we've agreed on three. I mean, I agree with you on Zeppelin. 
I'm not a big Led Zeppelin fan, right. but I accept their status. I mean, I do. I mean, I'm like Stairway to Heaven, some other things they did. Mm-hmm. Um, probably some of the most, what, what am I trying to say? Some of the most intellectuals to ever perform in a rock band or in Stairway to Heaven. You would agree to that? Yeah. You ever you ever listen to an interview with Led Zeppelin? Oh, yeah. Uh, they're, they're out there, but they're really, really bright. Oh, yeah. I mean, I you mean, can Jimmy tell they're Page, really, I mean, there's no Robert doubt. Plant. Yeah, two, two of the, mm. probably the smartest guys. I mean, had they chosen not to go into rock and roll, they could have worked as computer programmers at IBM. I mean, it's obvious they have an intellect about them, very capable of doing whatever it was uh, they choose to do. But, but you know, that that's where we get flubbed. I mean, we you've got a choice for number four. You've led me to believe it's Queen. I mean, I could argue for Queen. I could argue against Queen. You too. I could argue yeah. for and against. Bruce and the East Street Band, I could argue for and against. Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, I think, deserve some serious consideration. Um. 843-661-0937 is our number. You want to go to the phone? Uh, okay, we don't have yep, a call. Yep. Uh, Th- those, were the, those were the contest callers that were calling in a few okay, minutes ago. Still calling in. Yep. Uh, we've only got one winner per contest, but I do want to thank Pepsi. and they, They've done uh, a lot for us here as a feeble attempt at Radio Bree. It's not only in the, um, in the radio show, but the podcast as well. And we dropped another podcast yesterday. Am I right, We Red? published it, yes. That's what I've been told. We did. I've been told we dropped a podcast yesterday. We're planning to drop another Tuesday of next week. Is that right? That's the plan. And, and, and the, the one yesterday, and you, you went into some subject matter that you've talked about on the show thinking, this week. Deep thinking. And, and, and it's really, it's the question about the three political issues of the three big political issues that are in discussion these days, uh, the Biden family finances, the potential Trump indictment, or the banking system crisis, which is more likely to affect our lives. And you go into a really deep discussion about that. It's available now. Well, I mean, the banking situation ain't no joke. Right. I'll assure you of that. We've not. I mean, if you believe there were two banks that make bad decisions and everybody else made good ones, yeah, invest your life savings in banks today. Um, with all due respect to bankers who listen to this show, because um, bankers go to work at, yeah, they're, they're at work by now. It's time. nearly 10. It's time. Um, but, but I wanted to go back to Sam's question. Because I think we just gave the answer. We stumbled on the answer. Sam, the moment I knew America was in trouble was the day Rev told me that Casey and the Sunshine Band had more number one hits than Bruce Springsteen of the E Street Band. Yeah. I mean, that, that's how deep we've become, Sam. There you go. That's <laughs> who go. we are. You like right? That? I mean, I'm sure they're doing this in Beijing. <laughs> I'm sure in Beijing. Uh, they, they, they're they're dancing their Chinese asses off to KC <laughs> and the Sunshine Band. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Our number. Someone's on the phone. <laughs> yeah. What are you laughing about? I'm just. So, oh, I get a text. I mean, I got some crazy friends, man. We still are. They're sober. Music? I mean, they're they're sober this time of the morning, and they're texting me these crazy things. Anyway, we'll move on. We'll David, move on. David in the PD. Uh, hey, good morning. Oh, oh, Lord, man, we got shake your booty, Baker, and I'm your boogeyman, Ken Hard. Uh, hey, when you play that Eagles song, I think they should have called it the Hotel Capitol Hill. Because when you check in, you can never check out. Uh, I think that's what they were talking about this morning. You, you either go back and live in the world you created or you stay in the world. But this Preston guy you had on uh, from Hartsville, Give support. Anybody that can say ain't and pushing a rope uphill, man, vote for this kid. Have a good day. Weekend. Thank you, David. Appreciate that. 
661-1037. I mean, Rev and I debate music off the air. I mean, we debate it sometimes on the air, especially on on Fridays. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we're talking about is 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 the band okay? Let's use the Beatles as an example. You ready? We got what three minutes, three or four minutes. Right. Let's solve this problem. <laughs> and, and we're going to solve it. No, too. but, but Sam, Sam from Cross, stick with me, Sam, because I want to get into this Monday. I mean, I'm going to put my serious face back on for a second. We've got issues, guys. I mean, th- this country has serious issues that it better confront. There is no promise of being the superpower forever. And I go back to the moral conclusion of the Second World War. I mean, what was more moral than the fall of Nazi Germany and Adolf Hitler putting a bullet in his head? I mean, that, that is a very moral conclusion. But for some stupid reason, we Americans believe that it gives us kind of a lifetime exemption from any toils of the rest of the world and any realities of former imperial, uh, you know, empires or dynasties or, or superpowers. And we may do, I mean, Beck does these segments, you know what I mean? Preachers do sermons. They do a series of sermons out of a certain book of the Bible. We may next week put some other things on hold and, and really dig into American decline. Is America in decline? If so, why? How do we change the trajectory um, what can we do? I don't think it's pretty obvious we can't spend a trillion dollars a year we don't have. I mean, a trillion seconds ago was 32,000 years. I mean, just kind of stew on that for the weekend. One trillion seconds ago was thirty, nearly 32,000 years ago. We're 33-ish trillion dollars in debt with no no formula, nothing out there on the horizon suggesting we're going to try and modify or change or change that model. But on to more important things. So the Beatles were not a two-man band, but they kind of were, right? Well, I mean, McCartney I mean, and Lennon. Four of them. Well, I mean, and yeah, it was yeah, the Lennon four of McCartney them. McCartney wrote most of the music, I mean, they, of they, they were by far the forces that led the Beatles to sell 183 million um, certified I units. I think that's fair. Okay. Um, and you and I have had this debate before. So where does Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band, um, what, 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 from your perspective, Rev, how distinguished, no, how different are they from the Beatles, from the Rolling Stones? I mean, the Stones have the, the primary forces. So, the so Beatles you mean, had. You mean like a band versus a singer with a band? Correct. Is that you kind of? Is there any difference there? Mm, I think there is a difference, and I think you'd have to ask them do you consider yourself a band would you ask lennon and mccartney if they consider that you know should we have called this lennon mccartney and the beatles okay i'll give you an example when the eagles decided to get back together and hell freeze is over that would have been the comeback tour yep, about 94 um, yeah they opened with hotel california what the north charleston coliseums where i saw anyway i was there too so so when they get together to discuss whether or not to reunite Glenn Fry says to the band, because it's his band. I mean, he founded the band. Don Healy said, when do we tour? When Glenn says we tour. It's his band. So so they get together and begin devising a plan of getting back together. And Fry and Henley say, the only, re- the only way we do this is to be paid a much higher percentage than our former deal. And Joe Walsh said, I kind of wondered when you guys were going to say that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Y'all written all the music. I mean, you know, y'all, y'all, um, y'all are the dominant forces of this of this band so so what band here's my question got about a minute here what band is known not for 
is there a band out there, a great band, that everybody contributes equally? You couldn't have had all in the family without Archie Bunker, right? I mean, the show just goes yeah. away. You could kind of have Seinfeld without Jerry, without Elaine, without Kramer, without George. You couldn't have had it without them all. But if Kramer doesn't appear for a show or two, Seinfeld's still a pretty good show. Mm-hmm. If Bunker doesn't show up on All in the Family, it sucks. I mean, that, that show is centered around his personality. So is there a band? I know you're thinking like crazy. I'm trying. Is there a band that we think, when you think of Queen, who do you think of? Freddie Mercury. Okay, when you think of the uh, the Stones, who do you think of? Mick Jagger. When you think Keith of the Richards. Beatles, I mean, we've already discussed yeah. that. Is there a band out there that when you think of the band, you honestly think of the band and not that driving force? Wow. Yeah. Stew on that for a weekend. And there's another reason America's in decline. We can't answer <laughs> that question, much less deal with the Chinese and their right. artificial intelligence and, and all these other things. How about uh, ABBA? <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's a cute one. Take a chance, take a chance or whatever. Yeah, take a chance. <laughs> is that it? Yeah. Yeah. Dudes yeah. and... Yeah. Anyway, right? I, I'll let but they all be. kind yeah. of contributed, right? I, see, I'm telling you, man, I'm having a problem with this podcast. Because there are things you can say a little more racy on podcast than you can on radio. Right. And sometimes, because you got the lights on, we got the cameras running, sometimes I forget I'm on the radio, terrestrial radio, mind you. Right. And not, I'll, I'll remind you. And, and not podcasting. Yeah, you'll drop me in one of these um, <laughs> seconds. Hey, do, do want to say this. Appreciate all the support, and I mean that from the bottom of my heart. We're trying to launch a podcast. We don't know our butt from third base, but we're doing the best we know how right now. You guys have been gracious, kind, and supportive. Enjoy your weekend.